Nobody puts baby in a corner. You talking to me? You talking to me? To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> this is God. Who told you I was hot tonight? Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm going to break your heart with it. What kind of beer? Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? What? Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. All right, hello everybody, and welcome back to Movies for Life. I am one of your co-hosts, Michelle Egan. And I am your other co-host, Brian Kuyper. Brian, we're doing another one of my absolute favorite kind of movies today. We're doing single location movies for this episode. There's so many great choices. For There's this. so many good ones. We already did uh, one. We did 12 Angry Men. Yes. Now we're doing Which is... probably my favorite one in this episode. But yeah, oh my God, I love all of them so much. It's like yeah. one of my favorite well, I mean, things. Related to the one you're doing, I mean, geez, Hitchcock did a lot of these. Three? He did, he did Lifeboat. He did Rear Window. He oh. did the one we're, of course, discussing Talking today. About, yes. Yeah, and he also did uh, Dial M for Murder. I would have picked that one. That was yeah. right underneath the one we're doing today. Yeah. Under Capricorn isn't technically, but it's close. <laughs> uh, it's not very good, though. I, 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 I haven't I have seen to that. Say. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it was... Uh, we can talk about that one a, a little bit in relation to your film. But in all honesty, if you hadn't picked your pick, I probably would have picked Rear Window. Because that's um, <laughs> probably my favorite of this type of thing, but also my favorite Hitchcock film. But, you know, even, even more modern than i mean like uh the hateful eight is a great example of a of a recent one sort of that is sort of that is mostly a one location kind of movie mm-hmm. and you know there's so many good examples uh throughout film history of this kind of idea i think we yeah, it's, two, it's two always ones. fascinated me it's always sucked me like you know movies for this topic like movies have the power to take you to different worlds and like create this fantasy and show you these things you've never seen. And yet some of the stuff that fascinates me the most is just a couple of people in a room talking for the whole movie. How do you make that? that, Yeah. How do you, how do you make it work? How do you make it, how do you make it compelling? And the ones that get it right, I just fucking love them. I even love um, that one uh, buried where it's Ryan Reynolds in a coffin for the whole movie. That's a great movie. I oh, haven't seen so it. Good. Another one I'd be interested in seeing, um, I know it's in a car, is Locke. Yes, Locke. I haven't seen Locke yet, but I do want to yeah, see Yeah, but I've heard lots of good things about it, and it's one I'm mm-hmm. really, really interested in seeing. There's so, Secret yeah. Honor, uh-huh. which is just uh-huh. one guy in a room for the whole movie. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's just, these absolutely fascinate me, and we picked some uh, great ones. For this episode, yeah. so I guess um, we're, very we're opposite going, ends of the spectrum. They really <laughs> are. They really are. I mean, I mean, one's sort of claustrophobic, and one is sort of agoraphobic, if you will, in yeah. a way. I, I know we're going sort of in backwards chronology this week because, but we have to keep with our. We have to keep with our. first and then mine. Yes, I'll go first, then you go. So my pick is uh, Adam Green's Frozen uh, from 2010, uh, not to be confused with. The Let It Go movie. Yes. <laughs> Had to bring that up. <laughs> Had to bring it up, you know. And uh, mine, 
my pick is my favorite Hitchcock movie, 1948's Rope. Yeah, this is really a favorite. My goodness, you have a mm-hmm. tattoo of this. I do. So, <laughs> I have a so, tattoo. It's the little silhouette outline drawing of Hitchcock. Um, he's got it with a little noose around his neck. Just to be funny and also to kind of symbolize that this is my favorite movie of his. So I love my tattoo. Yeah. To emblazon something on your skin forever. (laughs) That's, that's, that's commitment. That means it's a favorite. Especially, you know, coming from me who is, you know, you know, afraid to get shots, you know, I I have no tattoos. Um, You are unmarked. I'm unmarked. I'm one of the last unmarked people of my generation, (laughs) but it's not because I'm opposed to it. It's because I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I want to go through the pain of it, <laughs> which is really, I know, I know that's what everyone tells me. That's what everybody tells me. All right. Should we just jump into it? Let's do it. Go so we're frozen. starting with Frozen. Now, this is, this is interesting because I've only just come to this movie. I saw it for the first time just last year. Really? Yeah. But I sort of instantly was drawn to it. I was engaged by it. Um, I came back to it at the end of last year as well. I, I, I wrote a, an article about it for Bloody Disgusting that actually, you, you just never know which article is going to strike a chord. And for some reason, this one really did. The comment section on this particular movie was contentious, as I recall. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was surprising because people Why? were this really divided. Yeah, people were really divided on it, though. Huh. I, I was I was amazed because, you know, I think there's a certain amount with this movie. I had written a line where I said that he had gone from going from sort of this fantasy where Adam Green, I mean, director Adam Green, has gone from, you know, sort of this hot, sweaty... Because the, the hatchet world is, is not... Is a fantasy world. You know, you don't, sure. there aren't people that exist that can, you know, rip a person's head open, you know, the way that Victor Crowley does. You know, I mean, yeah. he's, he's, it's, it's sort of a slasher world that doesn't really exist. And I, I, I said, this movie, on the other hand, is cold. And, and I, I put it, I said, it's a plausible reality. And boy, did that get pushback. That word plausible just pissed people off. Oh my um, gosh. Which was insane because I'm like, okay. Is it likely to happen? No. No. I mean, of course not. But plausible doesn't mean what people seem to think it means. Yeah. You know? It, it's, it's like... like you it's, can picture it happening You could picture way. it happening if, in, in an extreme situation. Yeah. If all the wrong things happen at all the right times, then yeah, yeah. something like that yeah. could happen. Sure. All right. People um, are weird. This yeah. Is so... Be. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, people people came at me because of the wolves, you know, it should have been a cougar. Yes. I mean, all sorts of things like that. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's not even what the wolves, I don't think that's even what the wolves represent in this movie. But we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get, get to, that. to sure. we'll get to that. So, I mean, what I do like about a lot about this movie is the relationships that are built in this first mm-hmm. section. Parker, who is dating Dan. So Parker is played Emma by Bell. Emma Bell. Super who is cute. so good in this. She's, She's so cute. I love so her. good in it. And then uh, Dan, played by uh, Kevin, is it Zegers? Zegers. Zegers. Yeah. I am I'm so awesome. See, <laughs> you kids and all your newfangled movies. Um, anyway. 
Heidi didn't. <laughs> I did. I I totally went there, didn't I? Um, I? I just sort of admitted before the show that I am playing a lot of catch up with movies that basically yeah. came out this century. Um, <laughs> you know, especially horror films, because for a while I was just not watching a lot of them. Uh, for that's good. Some reason. So I, I don't really know entirely why, but I just wasn't watching a lot of new horror films between, honestly, 2000 and 2019. <laughs> I don't, you have a lot because, of catch-up to play. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff that I missed, um, but thankfully Ryan Larson's got that You Ought to Know uh, column that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is helping me get caught up. And, and you know, I, I've, seen a, I've seen a lot from these eras, but, you know, not... Not as much as I, I would have liked. No. Not a problem at all. Whenever you discover a movie is the right time for you to see it. Exactly. And you for don't me, have to see it when it comes out. And for me, seeing Frozen this year, I think gave it a lot of power. Because, you know, I saw it towards the beginning of the quarantine. There's a lot of that element happening. I mean, you're stuck in Isolation. one place yeah. with people, you know, in my case with people that I know and sometimes have conflict with. You know, they're my own family, of course. So that's an interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, you have Dan and Parker, you know, or this couple been together. But then you've got Dan and Lynch, Joe Lynch, obviously named after Joe, Joe Lynch, the director Lynch, and his director. Adam's best friend. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you have this dynamic between Dan and, and Lynch that's just like, they are tight. I mean, best mm-hmm. friends for their whole Known each other lives. their whole lives, yeah. I like the relationships because... It's like Lynch and Parker are both third wheels, mm-hmm. and Dan is the one stuck in the middle. He's the glue. Yeah. That dynamic, I think, makes the movie so strong. I mean, because we're set up right at the beginning that Parker's she's she wants to be there, but she's kind of like, she doesn't want to get in the middle too much, but she wants to be with Dan, and, she's, and she really doesn't seem to like Lynch that much at the yeah. beginning, but she doesn't like want to alienate him. Yeah, skiing is a thing that Dan and Lynch have done, and she's trying to be involved, and Lynch is like, she doesn't really know what she's doing. Like, we're, they have to, she's a beginner, you know, so mm-hmm. he he's has a little bit of, maybe animosity? I don't know if that's the right word. Oh, it's a yeah, too I think strong definitely. toward her, kind of getting in the way of, uh, you know, his, his time with his BFF. If, the, if you don't buy the relationships in the opening sequence, the rest of the movie falls apart. It just doesn't yeah. work if you don't buy that. And for me, I'm watching this. These are some of the most authentic relationships among young people that I've ever seen in a movie. They feel the most real, more than most. There's an interesting thing, too. I don't know if you heard this, but something I've heard um, Adam Green say, I don't know if it was his thing or if it was an idea that the actors brought to the roles was that the way that um, Emma Bell and Kevin Zegers were going to play their roles was like completely different outlooks on the relationship. Like mm-hmm. Parker would play it or Emma Bell would play Parker as if, you know, she she loves this guy and she wants to get married, which is what she kind of says in the movie at one point. And Kevin Zegers was playing it as if, you know, he he brought her up here because to break up with her. Right. So I thought that was yeah. kind of interesting if you watch it that way, having that in mind. You can see it, too. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that was a surprise, because Sean Ashmore, who plays Lynch and Kevin Zegers, they auditioned separately, but it, and they kind of were paired down to each other, and they and there was this discovery that, 
hey, these guys actually have been lifelong friends. Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, oh. I saw that in some special feature or something like that. It was like... I don't remember that. Yeah, that's, that's Yeah. So you can really sense that chemistry of a, of a real mm-hmm. friendship there. It just, it just works. It just takes it to the next level. So, uh, I mean, as far as what I have here, you know, you have the whole thing, you know, where uh, Lynch is hitting on the on the other girl and you know trying to make a connection and her boyfriend isn't too happy about it and all that sort of stuff but but then she this girl breaks up so he has like something he's, he's coming back for he wants to come back down the mountain so that he can call this girl and you know and that's kind of what he's thinking about because he's i think he kind of wants the sort of sort of thing that um oh yeah that dan and parker have you know he or does. is looking he definitely for that. does but when they're on the up on the ski lift, I mean, there's all sorts of when they're first up on the ski lift, where Parker says to Dan, "You just, you just don't touch my face enough," and, mm-hmm. and different things like that. And he sort of like playfully pokes her in the face yeah. and all these sorts of things. I love that so, one. That one of my favorite lines from her is when like he uh, he calls me Parker, which is kind of funny, but like you you get what she's saying. Yeah. He's like he just calls me by my name, like no pet names or anything no that which is why you can kind of read you know uh-huh. that he's that he's not really as into the relationship as she is definitely definitely that whole pet name this just struck me because if my wife really wants to get my attention she'll call me brian yeah exactly because <laughs> because because i hear it and it's like what 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 i do what did i do, what did I do wrong yeah. <laughs> you know because you, you get to a in certain relationships so i mean the fact that they haven't done that that they yeah. don't have it's that. like when your parents middle name you like you know something's oh, wrong. oh <laughs> gosh yeah they call you by exactly. your first and middle name <laughs> oh my gosh i can still hear my mom saying like anyway <laughs> so so the, the the interactions on the on the lift like before they get stuck even are kind of funny you know and uh, but then I also really like that sort of the establishing shots of this movie where it's just like the ski lift, you know, the mm-hmm. gears of the ski lift. And then it shows like this big, wide open shot of the mountain. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And just this whole idea that sort of this human attempt to tame nature, you know? Going deep on me. Guys, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hate to do such things. But but yeah, there is that, that sense. It's like, you know, hey, we got it under control at the beginning. Because I mean, yeah. there's sort of like light music playing at the beginning and... Um, they have all these people and, but then when things go wrong is, is interesting. You know, I mean, this is where the whole plausibility thing comes, becomes a factor, right? How they're getting on the ski lift, how they're actually getting stuck up there. It is common. I mean, Adam Green's whole idea for this was, Hey, I remember going skiing places and they were only open on the weekends. Mm -hmm. What if someone got stuck on the ski lift on Sunday night and no one came to find them until the following Friday. That was what the whole idea what came if? from. Yeah. yeah, and and what if is is the best way to start is start a screenplay, I think, or to yeah, start a yeah. story, uh, just to start a story is, you know, what if this happened? And I think that's why there are a few hoops that need to be jumped through in order to make that happen. Yeah. And we that, have to add in it, some more what ifs, like what if they were too high up to get down safely. What if they did get down and there were wolves, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You and then there's even, there. even before that, you know, what if 
what if they bribed the guy to get them up on <laughs> get up on the lift? Then someone comes in and takes his shift, and they don't communicate well, mm-hmm. and so they don't think anyone's up there, and and then you know, so they're up there, and it's getting cold. They finally get up there. The night it's nighttime, and, so, and they're yelling down, "Hey, you know, we're freezing up here," and all that stuff. Then they start to. It's like, hey, there was one time I got stuck on one of these for like 25 minutes. You know, it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. You know, that whole thing, that's kind of what they think's going on. But then Dan says, while they're up there freezing, he asks, what do you think the worst way to die would be? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, because it's, it's, it's just like, are the, is he trying to lighten the mood? I mean, because he, he mentions, I think it would be shark attack. And then Parker says burning. And they're Which, talking about... I'm with her on that one. Yeah, I think so, too. We'll talk about that when we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just just that idea that no one wants to say freezing to that. Oh, true, yeah. Because that's sort of the unspoken thing. Because if they're up there shivering, one of them says shark attack, one of them says burning, which is sort of just the opposite. The opposite. Yeah. And then, of course, Lynch says... Sarlacc pit, Pit. Uh, which you know, for the record, I think he's right. I think Sarlacc Pit would definitely be the worst. What is the worst plausible way to die? (laughs) Hey, hey! If there could be out there in a galaxy far, far away, a planet with a Sarlacc creature in it, (laughs) that's that's my. Maybe freezing to death would be worse than burning because, damn, that sucks. <laughs> Just well, watching the way oh. they change throughout the movie and the frostbite and, ugh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think there's there's sort of like, there's always a saying, oh, with, with freezing to death, you it's just like falling asleep. Yeah, you just go to sleep probably. You, and you know, you die. hear those stories, but then while you're watching this movie, you're like, maybe not. <laughs> You know, maybe it's not so much like that after all, uh, especially after there, there's some scenes coming up in this movie where I'm like that, that just cringe me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know what really, you're going to probably <laughs> real there. There are two in particular that I'm just like that. Yeah. I, 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 I have to look away still after seeing it several times as just like, oh, wait. Because then, okay, the, then you have the lights turn off after they had all this conversation. Because you have the, during the Starlock Pit, you see the ones of the distance start going off, mm-hmm. and they're coming up the mountain. Yeah, it's a good uh, shot. Closer to them, it's such a great shot, and it's like then is when they realize, oh my god, no one knows we're here. Yeah. Then Parker even says, "No one that we know outside of the mountain is knows we're here." I didn't even tell anyone I was coming. Yeah, because they said something about, like, yeah. you know, maybe someone will notice if we're not in class and tomorrow. Right. And it's like, well, did you actually tell anybody where you were going for the weekend? You had to, yeah, right. you had to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's lots. Always and tell somebody actually, where you're going. Well, do you know what that made me think of was the movie 127 Hours. Exactly, yeah. Goodness sake, that's another one location movie that makes you just kind of go, yikes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, and that one's an actual a true story, which is yeah. just incredible. Um, anyway, that's a different subject. But but I love the, the sequence, you know, with Kane Hodder, you know, driving <laughs> yeah. driving the snowcat, you know, up the hill. You know, it's like, hey, come on down. And they're throwing the, the goggles and stuff down at him, the helmet and everything down at, mm-hmm. at the, his Throwing it in vehicle. front of the window. 
Another and what if, like, what exactly. if he had actually turned his head at the right time and seen them? And I think that's what is interesting about this movie, is that it is just a series of what ifs. Mm-hmm. You know, just tiny little variances in the situation that would have changed the entire outcome. And, you know, as the lights are turning off, Dan says, you know, maybe I could jump, which is just like, so, and, and then he says, yeah, I, I, there was this time, you know, like I did it before and all that stuff. It's yeah. sort of this, uh, it's it's a little bit of a commentary on sort of that bro culture yeah. of, you know, being being the man's man. And when they're actually faced with something that is truly terrifying, they just crumble. Yeah. <laughs> Which is human. Sure. It's, it's, it's you know, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, uh, with that crumbling, you know. Then I love sort of like they go back to sort of this Lynch. You know, they're freaking out. The other, Dan and Parker especially, I mean, they are freaking out. And Lynch is trying to distract them with uh, just I silly I love all those little conversations that they have, though. <laughs> I do, too. And I that's, that's one of my favorite things about mm-hmm. the movie is just each of them sort of fulfilling their, their role in a way where Lynch is trying to... Just like he would in any tense situation, he's trying to diffuse it. Yeah, he's trying to like make he, people. Yeah, you feel, feel like he better. does that probably all the time. Mm-hmm. He uses humor to deflect from serious things. Yeah, which is probably and, helpful in situations like this. I mean, takes your mind off of it at least for a minute. Yeah, yeah. you can collect. You can stop freaking out and collect your thoughts and figure out what you need to do. So he's exactly. kind of smart in that way. I agree. Like him saying the Sarlacc pit. Obviously, that he doesn't really mean that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a joke. You know, it comes back later. I love how Parker sort of turns it. It could yeah. be worse. It could be the Sarlacc pit, oh, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then, you know, you finally have Dan Dan just say somebody needs to jump. And after that, Parker drops her glove, one of her gloves. Yeah. Oh, which leads to one of the things that just yes. makes not be able to look at the <laughs> yes, screen. It does. Um, but Dan's jump. Oh, my God. What I like about this moment too is that okay. it's when when he notices that that she has frostbite on her face is when yes. he's like, "Yes, I need to jump. I need to help yeah. her. I need to get us out of this." That's yeah. when he makes the decision. That's true, and th- and that's something I hadn't really connected. But you're absolutely right. It is. It has to do with him wanting to be, you know, for lack of a better term, I guess, a protector, provider mm-hmm. kind of thing. Not not in some sort of hyper macho way. But just as, like, I think I have the tools to be able to do this. But he also admits that he's scared shitless. That he's (laughs) never done this. And he's... And the thing is, if he had landed differently in the jump... Yeah. I mean, he probably would have gotten his wind knocked out of him if he landed on his back. He might have broken some ribs or something. He might have broken some ribs or something like that. But he lands feet straight down. Bend your knees, dude. Do something when you jump. Oh, when he jumped, I mean, as soon as that shot, because it has a shot of him falling and his feet are straight. It's like from his perspective and his feet are straight. It's like, oh my gosh, I do not want to. (laughs) At first time I saw this, I was like, (laughs) and I still, this is one of those, I can't, I can't, I I, I look away. I I sort of blink a a few extra times during this part. Yeah. When because I watch it's not this. like it's not like some other movies where it's like you just hear the crack and like that's it. No, it's like crack, crack, several shots, bones over and over again, out bones coming his, out. Oh, yeah, yeah. I broke both my legs. You know, it's just like he knows it. Uh, oh, the way oh. he plays it when he's 
trapped down there too. It's so heartbreaking. But something in his voice is like you can just tell how freaking scared he is. And it's, yes, I know. It's, and it's horrible. Then, then Lynch throws like a bandana down to him, but it's like just mm-hmm. beyond his reach, and he's sort and of he has to reach leaning for. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> it's just. Yeah. I think that's where the movie really proves it's working mm-hmm. because there's a lot of empathy for Dan there. There's things where you can, may- you can just f- you can feel it when he does every time he moves, yeah. like you can feel it, and you're like, oh man. There's some empathy that maybe wasn't entirely there before, you know, mm-hmm. for him by then. Because I mean, it's not like he's he's a he's an unlikable character, but you do get the sense that he is kind of given the cold shoulder. Yes. To mm-hmm. Parker, and I think we're from the beginning. For me personally, I'm most empathetic with Parker. Because, you know, she's kind of a little bit of the outsider here. And she's, the guys are sort of making her do things for them. Like the whole, convince the guy over here to get us a lift up, you know, and all this sorts of stuff. And, yeah, I I wouldn't feel comfortable with these guys. I feel more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm feeling more empathetic towards Parker for most of the movie. For the most of the part of the movie. the least empathetic with Lynch. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, you've got this whole... At first. Thing. Yeah, at first. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's one of the things that... This this is what is really powerful, because we know the dynamic. Without Dan, there's no glue yeah. in this relationship. Now, all of a sudden, uh, even before the wolves arrive, Parker and Lynch have to rely on each other now, because they're the ones that are yeah. still... They're, they don't have their legs broken. They're, they're, they're still up in the lift. They, you know, and then, and then you have Lynch's whole thing was like, where he's going to like climb across the, the cable. And uh, it's like, I can't even do a pull up, you know, uh, which, which, you know, it took me a long time before I could do a pull up. So I could have I know, right? empathize with that for sure. And um, there's still, uh, even while all this is happening, there's still that, that stuff going on with the friendship between the two of them. Because yeah. Dan is down there with his legs broken. He's like, they had to write you a note to get you out of gym class. You can't do shit. <laughs> it's true. It's it's funny because, you know, they, they still have all of this whole, you know, I'll never let you forget this yeah. kind of thing going on. That we hear in the story later about how they first met. And and at this point, you also hear the wolf howl for the first time, and that's oh, where Lynch is the like the way he says the way he says like oh my god when he hears the wolves oh that gets me because he's like you can tell he's like gonna cry <laughs> oh totally. when Dan when Dan hears the wolves for the first time it's brutally scary I mean it's just like it's so tense and then when he gets up he kind of shimmies up up to the cable and he gets out there a little bit and 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 he's he, all of a sudden, he just feels, you can tell that Lynch is just feeling the height that he's at. Yeah. And, and you can imagine his arms are burning, and he's, and he's just terrified. Everything about this is like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back to the, to the chair, and then the wolves show up. And just that moment that is like, I find it so powerful, is when Dan starts screaming, don't let her look. Oh no, that's best. This is the best part of the whole movie to me. Yeah, because it Lynch he doesn't come back because he's feeling it. He sees he sees the wolves right. down below, and he he's like he's getting there. He's gonna getting there to help, but he makes the choice to go back because he knows he has to be with Parker and not mm-hmm. let her look and not let her see what hap- what's happening to okay. Dan. 
And that's a great moment for his character. It is. It I think is. it's yeah, perfect I, the I way they did that. I hadn't real. I hadn't thought of that as his motivation, but you're absolutely right. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. He, that, that's definitely. He says. He says, "Oh my god!" Because he see he's seen the wolves. He's like, "I have to go back yeah. and be with Parker," because he knows that Dan's probably going to die, and it, which which is really interesting that he's also thinking of her in that moment when it's you know it's his best friend. Right. And she, he throws that back in her face in the movie sometimes. Like I've known him my whole life. You've only known him for like a, a year, right? But like he knows that it's it's gonna like be horrible for her so yeah he mm-hmm. goes back to be with her in that moment which i yeah i think is a great moment for him what's wrong what's wrong don't, don't. Lent. yeah man <laughs> don't, let her look. don't you fucking let her look Dad! <laughs> Dad! no i won't man <laughs> don't, uh, don't you let her look <laughs> And it's a great moment because, you know, he's like holding, he's, he's holding, holding her, her face. face. Yeah. She is resisting him so much, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same time, I mean, I, I don't think she wants to look. It's just sort of that. She says uh, she does, but it's like, yeah, I don't think know. she actually, I don't think she <laughs> actually, actually does. It's just no. it's like how you don't want to look at the car accident you drive by, you know, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. I mean, it's just something weird about and especially if it's someone you care about you yeah know, she's 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 it's almost like she wants i don't know the proof yes you know that she she needs to know that it's actually real in some for, in some way that's another great thing for their friendship too yeah. is that both of the guys that's the first thing that both of the guys thought was about parker you yes that's you know because as soon as he gets sits down in the chair he says don't look down and you mm-hmm. know that you know that dan probably can't hear that you know, from right. when they're up there, but that's what he says too. Yeah. He's like, "Don't let her look." Yeah, that's why. Yeah, the relationships in this movie are—they're great. They're really well thought out, and they have when they do little moments like this, it just solidifies yeah. it. I love it. Oh, absolutely! And this actually brings us to my favorite part of the movie. Is right after that, Dan's dead. He's been eaten <laughs> by wolves. You know, plausible or not, should have been a cougar or not, whatever, what the fuck, it doesn't matter. Who cares? That's not the point of the wolves. The you wolves said fuck, are, right? I'm so proud of you. I did. Aren't you proud of me? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the wolves are, I don't mean to, I don't want to sound too pretentious, but to me, the wolves are just like the unrelenting, the nature of nature, I guess. You know, there's no, I, I, I would edit myself if I wrote that down. But um, like so the harshness it, it, of nature, the, exactly the brutality and, you know, of nature, sure brutality, exactly, and and it's just completely unrelenting. And there was this, um, okay, so Werner Herzog, okay, he's he's made a he's made a couple of movies that sort of a lot of movies really that sort of deal with nature being kind of unrelenting, you know, like Grizzly Man and Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and 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 Fitzcarraldo all deal with this to some extent. But uh, one of the things he talks about in both Grizzly Man and in the um, there's a uh, documentary on the making of Fitzcarraldo called Burden of Dreams, where it's an interview with him. And he basically talks about how much he hates nature. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because because I'm not going to do my Herzog imitation. Don't worry. But he's just talking about how he finds nature to be ugly and filled with murder. And that's the way he sees it. To me, that sort of encapsulates what the wolves represent in this movie. It's just, it's unfeeling. It doesn't care 
this trauma doesn't care about them. It's just trying to feed itself. Yeah. And that's all it will ever do. I mean, and it doesn't matter if it's a wolf or another animal. That's not the point. But anyway, in this scene, they're kind of... Uh, so you have Lynch on one side, Parker on the other, and Parker just says, why'd you let him jump? And and <laughs> Lynch is... I couldn't... How could I, how could I stop him? He had decided he was going to do it. And then he just mm-hmm. goes off on her. And he says, this is a summary of it all. Maybe if you hadn't forced your way into our thing, my best friend wouldn't be dead right now. Yeah. You know, that's what it all leads to. And it's sort of like they're saying things they feel, but not exactly what they mean. They can't articulate yeah. it. If they were thinking it through, they probably wouldn't say it. But sometimes, that's why she. That's why she doesn't yeah. get mad at him. That's why she just keeps saying, "I'm sorry," because she gets it's, it. She's like, "I know he doesn't mean it. He's just angry and sad." Obviously, it's such yeah. a. And what's beautiful about the end of that sequence is after they have this sort of, they get it out there. I mean, they just sort of get it out. She just sort of lean. She slides next to him mm-hmm. and just sort of hold so each like, other. Yeah, she like puts it's, his head on. Him yeah, and like he finally yeah. grabs her and is like, "Yeah, we're we're stuck in this together." Like. I don't yeah, mean any and of this. And it's not like any some sort of contrived sexual or romantic no. thing. It's just humans in their grief sort of clinging to each other because they have nothing else. They only have each other now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they have any hope of survival, it's going to be them. I like their conversation yeah. after this, too, yeah. I do, too. I, the whole thing about I would just, you know, orthodontists make a lot of money. <laughs> that's, that's no, my, fa- my favorite is what they're talking about, uh, he says that they want to have a dog named Steve. Because he's imagining his relationship with this other girl. And she's like, who names a dog Steve? That's a people name. Here, meet my cat, Chris. That's my favorite line. <laughs> just the way she says it is perfect. Because uh, it's, so it's another well, I mean, one of those scenes where they're just talking about bullshit to get through the situation. And it's it's kind of heart. It's funny, but it's like kind of heartbreaking at the same time. There's the whole thing where she's talking about the puppy. Yeah, her puppy. Oh, her her. I mean, this. I think it was. Uh, I think it was Trace Thurman who he he actually went into the comments on my frozen article and mm-hmm. like sort of fought for it because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, which I thought was awesome. I mean, I don't really even even know him. Uh, we haven't really interacted much personally, but um, we're just kind of, kind of mutuals on Twitter, know of each other. I think, mm-hmm. and and it was just host he, of a great kinda, podcast, horror queers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love horror queers. Yeah, check out horror queers. <laughs> but it was just, it was because this was the moment that he talked about that really moved him. Was when the, she's talking the about story, her puppy? Shaman? When she's talking about the oh. puppy, you know. Yeah. And this, this whole thing, he's, he's gonna wonder where I am and why I didn't come home, and and it's gonna die because it's gonna starve to death, and it's gonna die wondering why I left it, you know, and all this sort of stuff, and it's, it's just like it's so vulnerable. Yeah. And sad and but in a weird way kind of funny. I I don't even know how to express exactly like that she's everything focusing that's going on that. On. Yeah. Yeah. And But I get it. Yeah, and, that's what you Yeah. That's the kind of things you're thinking about in that moment. Yeah, and I think it's you know, you watch this movie and you think to yourself, has Adam Green experienced something like this to be able to get in these people's heads this way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I don't think so either, but it just, there's a clear sense of empathy with people who are dealing with really frightening and traumatic yes. situations. 
And I really admire that about the writing of this movie. I do too, yeah. Um, he really gets it right. He does. And and so, I mean, frankly, I feel like I like this movie more the more I see it. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah, I think it holds up more as, as I see it more. Then comes the most the chill moment of the whole movie. Like, nothing, nothing weird or scary or gross about this part is there oh my gosh the, when when they show the more when they show the sun come up and the moment they show that her hand is on that is on that safety bar everybody goes no i mean because yeah. we've all seen christmas story we've all seen the thing you know where you yes. stick your tongue to the flagpole exactly. right oh my gosh that that because because lynch is asleep still and she just sort of pries her hand off that bar and, and the skin well, on her first comes like up. At first, like she tries to pull she tries it, to but like lift. it moves the whole bar. <laughs> she really, but then you, but that makes you see like just how stuck it is, mm-hmm. and it's just like, oh, this is gonna be bad because she's gonna pull it. I'm like, no, she's yeah. gonna do it. Don't do it. It's intense. Well, and it's and it's so intense. And then she just hides her hand. Mm-hmm. She's just like she doesn't want Lynch to worry any more about her. Exactly. Yeah, I was it's wondering like, that this time. I was like, well, I always wonder, like, why doesn't she? Tell him. Why doesn't she show him? Like that's I probably know. why. Well, and then Lynch himself, his his hands are all cut up too mm-hmm. from the cable. I mean, even from that short sort of journey out on the on the cable, there it's cut through his gloves. His hands were bleeding and everything. And, she oh, doesn't geez. want to make him do the same thing that Dan did. You know, something dangerous mm-hmm. to save her. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's true. And. You know, oh, and then the next moment too really gets me. She has to pee her pants. Yeah, exactly. That's that's where I was going to because that's one of the things that I think. For one, really... I can't believe she lasted that long without peeing. Well, yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> she said she says she has to pee when they first get stuck. When they first get up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, and then um, then you know, Lynch takes a waz off the edge of the. <laughs> <laughs> off the edge of the chair. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a little bit easier for guys, I think, in that situation. Yeah. I uh, know. Sorry. But um, she sees it. There, there are these sort of these private moments that happen, you know, the, prying her hand off the thing. And then, and then when she, when she pees her pants, she kind of looks to see if he's asleep. And, and, and you kind of get the sense, is he really? I, I was wondering that too. Yeah. I think it looks the, like he is, but he kind of like shifts yeah. a little bit. So I'm like, is he just giving her the privacy? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I imagine if he is awake, he'd probably, you know, maybe like just waking up or something like that. Maybe he might have smelled it or something like that too. You know, I mean, there's, there are yeah. all sorts of possibilities of, of, of this situation. He's just trying not to embarrass her. Yeah. He doesn't want her to feel bad about doing something normal that she has to do there's no way around this you know and it's these it's those kinds of private moments that i think really elevate i hate to use sorry to use the word elevated (laughs) elevated horror i know people i know people hate that but i mean it really makes the movie something more you know i mean it really does add something because the characters are so i mean you really have intimate moments with these characters Mm -hmm. uh you see them and they're greatest pain you know physically and emotionally it's really something this next part where lynch is telling the story of the girlfriend <laughs> i find that it's, it's, it's kind of cute and kind of sweet you know we lo- we're into the same stuff we both like aerosmith you know i've seen which, which, yeah there's seen a lot eight. of stuff if you know adam green there's a lot of stuff 
that Adam Green likes <laughs> and that he's yeah. into in this movie. It's like it's it's all over the place. He's even he and Joe were in the movie in that one shot too. Oh, that's right. I knew that too. I knew that. I actually remembered that uh, from something as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I love the like. I like I like it when they put in like personal stuff like that. I do too. I do too. And it's like you know, I, I like, she had the same favorite movie as me. E.T., e. which it, is Adam Green's favorite movie, yes. I believe it. It's like, it's like you know, soulmates. <laughs> so we're soulmates, the kind of stuff you read about because we like the same movie same and the movie, same yeah. band. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, it's it's just sort of funny. And just this that story of how Lynch and Dan first met is really, is really moving. That's a true story, too. Is it really? Yeah, that happened that, to Adam. The, he sold it before, like, on the podcast and stuff, I think. You know, and I, that's one of, that's one of those podcasts that I know I should listen to, but I haven't, is, is his, uh, is it, is it him and Joe Lynch? Mm-hmm. That do that together? But yeah, it is a, it's a really cute story. <laughs> it's, it's so sweet. I mean, it's just the, the idea, you know, of preschool and you know, meeting, being sort of the outsider in that whole situation yeah. and being thrust together with someone you don't really expect to get along with and then yeah that actually reminded me of your best friend yeah that reminded me of when i first met like my best friend for most of my life we had kind of a similar thing um her like we were sat you know in alphabetical order so she was sitting right next to me i had this i remember had a pencil box with like a shiny turtle on it and she liked my pencil box and we started talking, and we were best friends like all through all through elementary school up to high school. Oh wow, it's so funny how some of those stories, well, how some of those things come about, you know? Yeah. Like, I think when I was a kid, it was probably like, "Oh, you like Star Wars? I like Star Wars too." Well, everybody <laughs> likes Star Wars, but you know, it was just like, yeah, because I'm just of a certain age. He was the one. He was the boy I was gonna marry. Hey. First grade, and uh, you know we get left there by our moms for the day. It's like the first real day of school, you know, without your folks around. And uh, Dan was this chubby little kid. <laughs> no, fuck it, he was a he was a fat ass. <laughs> and uh, you know, so our moms all leave, but Dan wouldn't let go of his mom's hand. And even after she left, he just stood at the front of the class, crying like a total pussy. That sounds like Dan. Yeah, you have no idea. Anyway, so the teacher, uh... Ah, what's her name? <sighs> Mrs. Schifrin. So Mrs. Schifrin is trying everything to get the fat kid to stop crying. And, uh, she says, you know, maybe there's somebody... somebody else that you know in the class, you know? Like, maybe you have a friend you want to sit with. And this old fucker points right at me and says, him. Now, I've never seen this kid in my life. But for some reason, you know, he pointed at me. So you had to sit with him? Yeah, for a whole week. <laughs> whole first week of school, I had to share my little cubby with his fat ass. <laughs> He's a douchebag. I never let him forget it. You know, and, and it's in that moment where he decides, you know, Dan didn't die up here for us to just give up and die too. Mm-hmm. And he decides he's gonna gonna go for it again by climbing the cable. Which, you know, I mean, th- that's 
pretty unlikely. I mean, <laughs> that that would probably cut your hands off. That's but, a long uh, way. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way. He makes it to the first chair, and it's just like, oh my gosh, I, how you know did he do that? And then he has to make it to the second one as well, and he realizes, oh, I should have brought my ski pole with me because the wolves are back. Wolves are not in reality, or not like they're not as aggressive as those. they're not no. that aggressive. No, they will usually pick off like the weaker yeah. element of a herd, or for example. The whole criticism of the cougar is probably, but you can't train a cougar. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't use a cougar on a film sure. set and and, and and have them work with people. Whereas you can you can train yeah. dogs that look like wolves to fake attack people, you know, because they didn't want to do CGI. And I'm glad they didn't. Mm-hmm. Everything in this is practical, uh, as I recall. I don't think there's anything CGI in this movie. Maybe a little enhancements, but yeah, nothing really yeah. that I noticed big yeah i mean because there are a lot of real stunts in this movie Mm -hmm. and as i understand it's a lot of times it's the actors doing them not all of them because kane hotter was the was the stunt coordinator on this sure which makes a lot of sense i mean they you know the whole victor crowley thing and all that stuff so anyway so then we get to that ending sequence and obviously the wolves attack him too when he gets down to the ground which we don't see yeah yeah he he does like get his skis on and like tries to get away but you just see the wolves chasing him and then yeah parker's then parker's up there alone for so long she stays up there for a long time waiting for lynch the way that 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 lift is just like tilted she's just at one end of it i mean to me it's just like something about that just kind of turns my i'm i'm a little bit uh you could say i'm afraid of heights i i just i just don't do well something about that moment just kind of makes me go, and then and then you you we know that the screw is coming loose as well on the chair, which actually ends up working to her benefit because it <laughs> it comes loose, it falls, the safety line stops it for a bit, and she's closer to the ground and she's able to drop. Of course, the chair falls on top of her a little bit, and you're like, why didn't they? They could have thought of that before. We'll just knock the chair loose. But, oh well. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. If if I would think of that, though, either. I don't know. You know, you never know what you would think in that situation. Yeah. So anybody that criticizes, yeah. why didn't they do this? It's like, yeah. who cares? Like, you don't know what you would actually do. Someone, yeah, I would might, might have never even thought of that. Well, I mean, you know, and then the fact that the ordeal really isn't over even after she gets off the lift. I mean, she escapes the wolves and all that stuff. But, I mean, she gets to the side of the road there. I mean, I mean, obviously the one cards drive by. I mean, did they see her? Probably not. I would expect, but then the other one, you know, almost runs her over, you know, Um, I mean, but at that point in the week, because this would have been, because were they just one overnight? So it's Monday at some point. It was okay. It was Sunday night. And then there was another night. There's two nights after that. Oh, okay. So, so they, they they were, they were there overnight and then she was there overnight after Lynch. That's right. Got down. That's right. That's right. So so it's she been... Went, she went down in the morning. So it's, it's like Wednesday. It's like Wednesday, yeah. <laughs> so where they're at, it's... it's um, I mean, what are the chances of people coming by on that road at that time? Yeah. You know, especially when the resort is closed and all those sorts of things. Her in the car, for whatever reason, you know, kind of staring at herself in the, uh, in the mirror, and you hear the driver say, you're going to be okay. And then she hears in her head, both Dan and Lynch say, you're going to be okay. For some yeah. reason, that makes me think of the ending of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where she's just, <laughs> okay. where with Sally, you know, it's like she's riding in this car and she's like just made it, 
I mean, she's not frantic like Sally is, but that whole line that you're going to be okay, is she? Is she? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's physically, yeah, she'll recover. I mean, she'll have yeah. the scar on her face from the frostbite. She'll, she'll have probably have something with her leg, but those things will ultimately heal. But man, <laughs> psychologically, <laughs> yeah, that's something. That's you know. going to take some time. Yeah. But you actually you know, see I... her in uh, mm-hmm. Hatchet. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was in Hatchet. It was in one of the Hatchet movies where, yeah, there was a moment on, it was like a news story on the TV, and it's her. And she just says, like, yeah, I'm never going skiing again. So you, <laughs> it's just one of those little so it must, Adam must Green have been world in-jokes. In yeah. yeah, it must have been one of one of the sequels then. Because the first Hatchet was, was before it? this. Yeah. Okay, maybe it was Hatchet 2 then. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. there was a moment like been. that. <laughs> yeah, um, but... Boy, I really like this movie. And it's one of those movies that, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we'd go on like retreats or, you know, I was in Boy Scouts, you know, we'd do like trips or something like that. So it was like, all right, we're going river rafting. Let's watch Deliverance. We're going to the beach. Let's watch Jaws, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm like that too. Yeah. You know, it's like, so, so now, or the river wild was big when I was, when I was a kid too. Or, or we're watching Friday the 13th before our big camping trip, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, that yeah. sort of thing. This would be the movie that would go before the ski trip. You know, oh, yeah. this is definitely the one. Obviously, I was. This came out when I was in my thirties, so uh, it's uh, that one you would have. It was be beyond that time, but if I was a kid in, in the two thousand tens, this would be the movie before the ski trip. <laughs> I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like I said. I, I think I like this movie more every time I see it. The first time I saw, it, I was like, yeah, I liked that. The second time when I wrote it for the article, I was like, yeah, that's really good. That's really yes. good. It was really solid. And this time, I think I liked it even more. More and more that relationships uh, between the three characters just really are strong and it's well-written. Maybe the situation is a little bit unlikely, but so. These are the the people who complain about that are the people that Hitchcock called the plausibles. You know, the people that needed a needed an explanation for every little thing that happened in a movie. It's like, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't need to be 100% real. And in fact, if we see things in movies depicted as 100% real, we find them boring. Yeah, I agree. That's, this is uh, my favorite of Adam Green's movies. And mm-hmm. yeah, for just all those same reasons, it's a situational movie, but mm-hmm. you have to one-up that with the characters and he really does that with those little moments and the conversations that they have that feel very real and really make you sympathize and empathize with each of them at some point even if that's not how they start out in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. and he's really good at that yeah I very agree. effective i agree yeah and you know my experience with adam green's movies is pretty limited i've only only seen this one and hatchet you know it's not because i haven't wanted to see his other movies it's just you know there are always situations where you don't get the movies, you know. But yeah, I, I think he's he's really got a nice voice. I really like his voice uh, in, in filmmaking and look forward to hopefully being more from him, you know. Watch the Hatchet sequels. They're fun. I, I will. <laughs> All right. So moving on. Are we done with yep. that one? Yeah, I think so. Anyway. All right. Now, we're gonna, now for something completely different. Nice and cozy and inside and warm. Yeah, and nice brandy and warm. And Bourbon and Jimmy ice Stewart. cream uh, and Jimmy Stewart. This is Probably. Rope from 1948. Yeah. 
Um, my personal favorite Hitchcock movie. Um, I don't know why. It's, it's been a favorite. I've had this tattoo. I got this when I was 19. So it's at least wow. been my favorite for that long. And, that, and that's not to be like, again, pretentious or anything. Like, oh no, Psycho is not my favorite. This little one rope is. Like like we were talking about, Like this is like one of my favorite types of movies. Yeah. And like literally my, my two favorite Hitchcock movies are Rope and Dial in for Murder. Mm-hmm. I fucking love both. I could have talked about either one of those for this. Um, yeah. And it's just the same thing. It's, it's, it's good writing. You know, he didn't, the writing from, came from a play. So mm-hmm. they already kind of had that, you know, the situation in mind, you know, like, uh-huh. cause it's just one location and few characters and then um it was adapted and then the choice that he made to do you know the looks like it's taking place in a single take mm-hmm. is really cool you gotta admit yeah i mean and it I, just fascinates I, me from beginning to end i've loved this one for so long i love it yeah i think um one of the things that hitchcock apparently told peter bogdanovich is if you don't know what movie to ne- make next just find a hit play and shoot it. Right. It's easier said than done. I mean, if, if, you, if what Bogdanovich says is what he was really talking about was you keep the structure. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why a play is a hit play is because it, it, it's structured to be so. So you don't mess with that. You don't open And the writing is already there. You know, the uh-huh. writing is so juicy usually. Like, all you got to mm-hmm. do is point a camera at it and have great mm-hmm. actors to play it and just... Watch them. Yeah. That's exactly what this movie is, pretty much. Yeah, and it, it, it really is. I mean, this, as of all the movies that are, including Hitchcock's, that are filmed plays, this one is the most like watching a play because it is not edited. I mean, you you have to look where the camera's looking, um, unlike on a, with a play, because obviously you can just choose where you look. You don't have to look at the actor that's talking. You can look at someone else, you know, that sort of thing. Otherwise, I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of it that's very much like the experience of sitting in a theater and watching a play. Yeah. Uh, cause, cause you do, you know, you're guided by the blocking and the acting where to look. And it even gives you a little bit of sense in, in several moments of looking at the actor that's not talking, you know, uh-huh. cause there are great shots of Jimmy Stewart just listening. Yeah. Or the whole conversation that's going on while the maid is is changing. The, yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> I love that part. That's one of my favorite things. But but anyway, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. But one of the things that I find interesting about this is that it's based loosely on a real situation. Famous, yeah. The famous. So it's Lee based. Holden it's based Lowe on case. a British play mm-hmm. um, from a few years earlier. I forgot what year that was, but it's called Rope's End. Yeah. Um, that play was based on the 1924 Leopold and Loeb murders in Chicago. Um, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were 19 and 18, respectively, at the time. They were like two like affluent students, pretty much like the characters in the movie. And they were into, as they talk about again in the movie, they were into Nietzsche's theory of the Superman and that they believed that their intellectual superiority gave them pretty much carte what's the word blanche. carte blanche. Carte blanche yeah, that they didn't have they to follow law and order and the morals of society. It didn't apply to them, and so they kidnapped and murdered um, a fourteen-year-old boy um, named Bobby Franks. But if you actually read like what they did to him, mm, don't read into that. And so they were trying to commit the perfect 
murder. And mm-hmm. that's basically the, um, the, I cannot freaking talk today or think of words. <laughs> that's what the movie You're is. You're doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I have like a certain word in my head and it's like, I don't know what it is. Anyway, so that's basically what this movie is about. We have the movie opens basically with the murder. It's mm-hmm. uh, John Dahl, who I fucking love so much. I love John Dahl. Oh, he's so good in this. God, he's so yeah. good. Um, he's uh, Brandon Shaw, and uh, Farley, Farley Granger is Philip Morgan. And I love Farley do... Granger, Yeah. by the way. Farley Granger in this and in Strangers on a he's Train. He's on a train, yeah. I, I like him even more in Strangers on a Train, uh, if I'm being honest, because I think... He's got I some great he's... moments here. <laughs> yeah, he's but he's so good in this, and I think what... I think the dynamic that they have, you know, is so well drawn. I mean, obviously they spent time rehearsing this. um, So they really found the characters and they rehearsed this like a play. Otherwise it would be completely impractical to do the, you know, with all the cameras and stuff. I mean, you'd just be wasting film like crazy if you didn't have this down beforehand and ready to go. So they really know the characters like actors in a play know the characters, you know? So um, the movie opens with, them strangling, killing one of their friends, David Kentley, and they put his body in the in a chest right there in the living room, and then they are having a party later on that day. And because okay, we have to get into like the whole how they think of themselves as the Superman because yeah. it's just it's sometimes well, it's sometimes it's fun to watch, and sometimes it's just like oh my god, shut up. To me, I think. <laughs> to me, here's what I think, though. I think Brandon thinks of himself as the Superman. Oh, absolutely. I think Philip is going along with it. Oh, yeah. He's obviously got a guilty conscience through this whole movie. I mean, he's, whole he's, movie. Breaking, he's breaking the glass and he's... And he's you know playing the the tune on the piano over and over again. He play you know when sets the metronome, he starts playing it faster and faster and faster, and all these sorts of things. He's clearly just agitated. Um, I love how he's just getting thing. continually drunk throughout the movie too. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> it's it's really good. Well, I mean, and I love I love how the what's funny you know what's interesting is the movie sort of introduces all the characters one at a time in this yes. sort of nice entrances they all have these beautiful entrances that i just enjoy so much so i didn't honestly write any notes about the movie until until all the characters have arrived i I actually (laughs) don't have any notes until all the characters are there okay well (laughs) do you just want to talk about just the the technique first of all maybe just get that out of the way and then we'll go with other stuff yeah so yeah the movie is filmed there's only 10 cuts in the whole mm-hmm. movie, um, Hitchcock's idea was that he wanted to use a reel of film for each take. A reel could only hold 10 minutes worth of film in it. And so most of the cuts, I think, are about... They're a little less than that. Most of them are like seven minutes long for each sure. thing. Yeah. And some of them are very obvious where the reel mm-hmm. changes. Because it usually goes on somebody's back or it goes on the chest as he's opening it. There are a couple unmasked cuts, too, that we yeah. were talking about before this that you still kind of miss because it's like watching a movie, but there are I really to, key points in the movie. I had to rewind. I had to rewind to make sure that I had even seen them because mm-hmm. uh, I was like, wait, wait a minute. We're now, we were just, we, I remember we were just having this conversation between David and, you know, so-and-so, and then all of a sudden it's on, it's on Jimmy Stewart. Wait, wait, was that a cut? And so I actually had to go yeah. back and check. 
and but it's at a really key moment. It is, and so it's, it's a perfect one. Yeah, that first one. Well, technically, okay. There's a cut from the street where we see sure. our credits at the opening in the opening sequence. Well, it pans. And it pans. It pans to the window and cuts to cuts, to David's yeah. face as he's being strangled. Now, Which, by also, the way, that's too that's too fast. By the way, you hear him scream, and then he's yeah. being strangled, and then he's dead. It's like it takes a lot longer than that to strangle somebody. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you did you catch the Hitchcock cameo? Oh yeah, that's my this is my favorite Hitchcock cameo ever. Yeah, yeah. well, mine is actually in Dial M, where it's <laughs> just a picture, where it's just where he's in a photograph. Oh, that's right. Show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the front um, of the class photograph. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this just, is my favorite Hitchcock cameo. If you can't spot it, you'll notice it later on in the movie as it's getting dark outside. There's like one of those flashing uh, neon lights outside of the window, and it's it's of his silhouette drawing. That's it's really right. small. Yeah, yeah, but I love it. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> gotta 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 throw that in. That's a, that's an important thing. So anyway, that cut. So that that's the first technical cut but then it then it it's going you know they're discussing the whole party you know they're inviting what like they're inviting their friends over Kenneth it's it's isn't it for David's um, father David's father right and Brandon comes up with this whole idea okay let's use the chest that his son's dead body is in that Mr. Kentley's dead body is in as the centerpiece of our party let's put the candelabras and the food on this thing and it's just sort of this morbidity to it. Um, but the, he's so uh, it makes him so excited and so yeah. smug. If you notice, there's a couple of places he gets it. It feels almost like he's getting like a sexual thrill out of some of this. If you notice, because right after the murder, he has a cigarette. You know, it's like that mm-hmm. that cigarette, that first cigarette after sex, and he's got like one of those, you know, kind of things. And he does it mm-hmm. again after all the the guests leave. As soon as all the guests leave, like he lights up a yes. cigarette again, like that was thrilling, you know, because yeah. he's just he's into um, like playing with all these people and mm-hmm. again, like broaching his superiority that like I can get away with this right in front of you. And I exactly. love every minute of it. And you can see already that Philip is just like, I, I, I am not cool with this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, what he's just like, this is just too vulgar a display. To do this. Oh, and when um, when Philip asks him, it's near the beginning of the movie when Philip's asking him, like, you know, how did you feel during it? Which is interesting because Philip is the one that was strangling him, not Brandon. That's true. But Brandon is the one that's all like excited about like having done it or whatever. But when Philip asks him like how he felt during the murder, Brandon's like basically shaking with excitement and he's like gripping the champagne glass. Again, it's another like kind of sexual thing that he's getting from this which is really sick <laughs> yeah yeah it is it is i mean it's uh and i know that um the the screenwriter was not particularly fond of seeing the murder at the beginning he wanted there to be a question as to whether oh, yeah. yes. there was actually a body in the chest or not he thought it would be more suspenseful yeah to wonder if they had actually done it or not Okay, I well, get what you were talking about now. Yeah, with the bomb thing. Yeah, but but in this case, you know, having having the body in there is the bomb yeah. theory. You know, the famous bomb theory that Hitchcock put forward. If you have a if you have two people talking about baseball and then suddenly a bomb goes off, you get a moment of shock. If you show the bomb first 
and then and with the timer on it, and then you show the people talking about baseball. Then it explodes. You the whole you have the two minutes or whatever it's taking of them talking about this. The whole audience is going is then tense. He has, then he has you have suspense. Yes. You have suspense. I think that's where we have when you show the body that a body is actually in there. Yeah. You have you have, you have the, the same body. kind of suspense. I think. Yeah, you do because there are moments where where some where people are like going to open the chest, mm-hmm. you know, and then they don't because of whatever reason, you know, Brandon intervenes in one case, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. When Philip so, notices the rope hanging out of the edge of the chest. That's a great yeah, moment. Yeah, that is. One of my favorite is. moments too, that I, I don't know why I didn't notice, notice it before maybe was when they were, um, they're moving stuff from the table and they're putting the, uh, the tablecloth on mm-hmm. the chest. It's Philip and Brandon doing that. It's like they're laying a shroud. Oh yeah. On yeah, his yeah, body. Definitely. Yeah, like over that a was a, that was a great because he Brandon kind of pauses for a moment before he he drops it down because that's exactly what he's thinking of it. He's like, "This is our ceremonial altar, and on which mm-hmm. you will put, you know, our sacrificial feast." You know, he's talking to Mrs. Wilson about that, but like he kind of means it because they're basically yeah. eating off of a dead body. So, I mean, Edith Evanson as Mrs. Wilson is interesting because I mean, she's she's the maid. She's she's sort of setting up for this whole party and stuff apparently on set she was kind of treated yeah like a maid which That's is really I thought, weird i read too that they, kind of, they yeah. kind of ignored her yeah and i think she's wonderful in the movie um but i mean she's I love, a fellow I love actor her. i love her and jimmy stewart in this movie i love yeah. the way jimmy stewart talks to her in this movie it's so cute yeah i mean it's so it's just sort of this gradual introduction of the characters. You got Mrs. Wilson coming in and they help set up. And then Kenneth. Do Kenneth and Janet come together? I can't remember. No, Kenneth comes by himself first. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so, um, and Kenneth is played by, uh, I wrote down the names of the actors. There aren't that many. So I thought I'd go ahead and mention them. So Douglas Dick, not a, not a person I'm familiar with. But Kenneth and Janet are kind of the roles where I kind of go, um, what are they there for? <laughs> you know, a little bit. <laughs> Because I, I, I understand that they're kind of... Well, okay, I take that back. Kenneth looks so much like David. Yes. That there's there's sort of this sort of this mistaken thing. And there's a little bit of tension that happens there. Because he's sort of like, I don't know, are they going to kill him next? <laughs> you know, I think there's almost a sense of that. No. Yeah. Um, it's an- they're another... They're just more people for Brandon to play with. That's true. Because yes. um, Janet was with... Actually... It kind of went, Janet was with Brandon, and then That's Kenneth, right. and then David. She's now with David. And, yeah. yeah, he keeps dropping little hints to them, like, uh, to Kenneth, like, uh, maybe you'll have your, I think you'll have a chance with Janet now. And he doesn't really say why, because he obviously can't. But, well, yeah, he's just, he's just messing with them, and he's trying to, um, he's cause, he's he wants to get them to the point, I think, where she does, where she gets kind of upset, like, what did you do? I like. I know you did something, you know, to stop David from being here, to put me and Kenneth in this uncomfortable situation between us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because definitely. He's the one that broke up with her, and she's embarrassed to be there with him because of that. One of the things that's funny is in the closing credits, all of the characters are listed in relation to David. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which I think is really cool because um, David is the because they're listed in order of that they appear. Right, yes. so David's the first one you see. Dick, uh, Dick Hogan is his name. He's on screen for you know ten Two seconds. seconds. <laughs> yeah, and um, and then then you have Brandon Phillip and Mrs. Wilson are, are not 
listed exactly that way, but Kenneth is listed as David's rival. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Janet is, is David's girl. David's girl. Uh, Mr. Kentley, David's father. Mrs. Atwater, David's aunt. You know, and it's just like it's 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 an interesting touch, you know, because it 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 elevates the importance of that character because they are all there because of someone who is there there, but but not interacting because he's dead. Right. Um, So, I mean, it's it's an interesting touch that didn't really occur to me before this viewing. So I just, and you know, Janet is uh, by Joan Chandler. I think uh, you know, she nice, is wonderful. Nice, in this movie. nice, nice, sweet, sweet character. She's kind of a heart, I guess. She is wonderful. I love her. Yeah. This could be, I a love, cool I love movie. all the little, little things about her, the way she calls everybody chum. Yeah. I love that. And the, just the little things about um, her character that come up and she's like, she says she's, she always tries to make a joke and it never works. And like, what would you say to some champagne, Janet? And she's like, hello, champagne? Like, she's trying to be right. funny. Yeah, it's, it's cute. It's, it's <laughs> she's, really She's cute. very cute. But then, yeah, she does have some, again, like with, with Frozen, she does have those, like, real moments where you yeah. you really care about what this whole situation is, is doing to her. She has a moment with Kenneth. And because they're all kind of, you know, in this, like, party situation in this time, it always feels like people are just, like, like putting on a show for everybody yeah. you know mm-hmm. when we watch movies mm-hmm. like this they're always just trying to be like oh so lively and talkative and like nobody really talks about anything real right and they have a moment where they actually talk about something real and i love that yeah definitely okay mr kentley sir cedric hardwick yes and and mrs atwater, mrs. Uh, atwater. Constance Collier. <laughs> oh my gosh i love her she's great <laughs> holy shit she's so funny and yeah. it's like I saw this movie. It's something, something, or maybe it was just something. Just something. Um, and and I think it had it had Ingrid Bergman and Cary yeah. Grant. And it's like she's talk ironic. She's talking about the movie Notorious. She could be. There was something she in the could um, be. <laughs> there was something in the uh, the extras that I watched where they were like, uh, it's it's possible they were talking about Notorious. Notorious is from 1946, so yeah, it was just yeah. a couple of years before, but. They really kind of put it in, they say, they put that in just to be put those in annoy, annoying characters that, like, can remember oh, everything. That's true. <laughs> but at the same time, it's, it's a nice in-joke, though. Yes, exactly. It's a nice in-joke, because obviously Hitch had worked with both Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman more than once by this point. Yeah. And would work with both of them again. It's, it's, a, it's, a, nice, it's a nice touch that's a little meta without being heavy-handed, you know. Um, yeah. It's 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 fun. I like that sort of thing because Hitch is always. That's something that I think people forget about Hitch is all of his movies have humor. Oh yeah, he loves humor. You know the only the only ones that are kind of most of his movies are fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there's a, there's an element to them that is fun. The only exceptions really are like I don't think Vertigo has intentional has a lot of that sort of feel to it. It's a different tone. It's darker. Uh, and, and Psycho, I mean, everyone, Psycho, I'm just now starting to realize how funny it is. It's got moments. It's, it's got its moments. Um, but most of his movies are sort of like, in, like Frenzy, you know, which is sort of related to, people talk about in relation to Psycho a lot, is actually very funny. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it's a lot of that sort of thing. The only one is like Topaz, which is just boring. 
you know. Oh, yeah, it kind of is. It's it's the <laughs> it's the it's the only Hitchcock movie that I've tried to watch that I've never been able to make it through. <laughs> it's not that bad, but yeah, it's not. Okay. As... It's not uh, as fun, I, as exciting as the other ones. I gotta give it another try, and I will. But but for me, it's just one that I really struggle to get through. <laughs> and, which is <laughs> but a, yeah, which is, this movie this movie is hilarious all the way through. It's all so the little funny. all the so little funny. lines that they have, all the, the little moments between the characters. Like I love with um, Mrs. Wilson when Janet is getting her food. She's like, "Be careful on that pate, dear. Calories." And that's all. She, and just Janet gives a little look like. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's just like it means it means nothing, but it's so funny. Yeah. And I, I think her character is, is I don't know, I just really I really think she's she's great. It, it, to call her comic relief, I suppose, is a shorthand for it, but she's just Which one? Uh, uh Mrs. Atwater. Yeah, I, I I it's kind of a shorthand to call her comic relief because I think there's more to it than that, but I really enjoy her. Now, um Mr. Kentley is is interesting too. I mean, especially when we're getting into okay. So next person, uh, the last person to arrive is is uh, Rupert Goodell, uh, played by James Stewart. Um, yes. His first. This is his first uh, collaboration with Hitchcock of four. And he's so um, different in this movie. It's too. very different in this he's movie. He's so different than anything you see him in. And I love yeah. it. Yeah, just I the, can't... Ad, just the attitude of his character mm-hmm. is just is so different. It's it's very egotistical. Yeah, it's very haughty in a way, but then he's also very playful, like he is with yeah. with Mrs. Wilson. Yeah, and uh, to where the thing is, you can see the differences between him and Brandon. Because okay, Rupert yes. Cadell was um, the headmaster um, for these boys at prep school. This is basically where they got the idea for what they're they're planning here today with the whole thing with Nietzsche and the Superman. Uh, Cadell had those same ideas. He basically taught it to them. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you find out in the movie, like they're they're completely different characters on the same yeah. subject. They have totally different ideas. Brandon is really, really into it and really believes it. Whereas you can kind of tell the way Rupert talks about it that he doesn't really believe it. It's almost like he's joking about it's it. It's a joke about it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, he's talking I mean, about okay. like, you know, killing somebody for theater tickets, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And that whole yeah. conversation that they have. And when Brandon really goes off and upsets Mr. Kentley, that's a great so, scene. Now you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may. And I do think of the problems it would solve unemployment, poverty, Standing in line for theater tickets? I must say I've had a perfectly dreadful time getting tickets for that new musical. What's it called? You know. The something with what's her name? (laughs) My dear Miss Atwater, careful application of the trigger finger and a pair of seats in the first row is yours for the shooting. And have you had any difficulty in getting into our velvet rope restaurant? Frightful. A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, madame. And if you'll kindly step this way. Oh, no, a step... (laughs) over the head waiter's body. Thank you. And here's your table. <laughs> Rupert, you're the end. There's a hotel clerk I could cheerfully flick a knife at. Oh, no. Sorry. Knives may not be used on hotel employees. They are in the death by slow torture category. Oh. <laughs> along with bird lovers, small children, and tap dancers. <laughs> Landlords, of course, are another matter. You're seeking an apartment? Call on our Miss Sashwaite. Of the blunt instrument department. What a divine idea. If it suits your purpose, merely 
But then we'd all be murdering each other. Oh, no. Oh, no. After all, murder is, or should be, an art. Not one of the seven lively, perhaps, but an art nevertheless. And as such, the privilege of committing it should be reserved for those few who are really superior individuals. And the victims, inferior beings whose lives are unimportant anyway. Obviously. Yeah, and you know, I'm and I'm not saying I agree with him, but Arthur Lawrence, the screenwriter, feels that James Stewart was miscast. I know. I saw that too, and I was like, which, no, which I thought was, I think he's perfect. I think he's very good. He's playing against type, and I think he he's he his his issue is a couple of things. He's he's like, well, it's supposed to be in the subtext that Rupert had an affair with one of the boys. Yeah. This movie and, is very gay, by the way. Yes, it is. And it's an in, and it's intentionally gay. I mean, that's that's exactly what the they original were the original play yeah. was. Um, it was very kind of it was pretty much overt in its depiction of homosexuality between the, at least the two main characters. And mm-hmm. yeah, there was something about uh, Rupert having an affair with one of them. But it was kind of funny. I was uh, uh, again the screenwriter Arthur Lawrence said that like he was like it, the original script was so homosexual <laughs> and we had yeah, to take out like we had is, to dude. take out everything <laughs> and i was like oh my god <laughs> and they the censors obviously did not want that like nobody apparently on the set wanted to admit that there was this undertone to the movie even though it was there like some actors even refused to to star in the movie because they did not want to you know have that because it was, they weren't so overt with it. Like they took out a lot of lines where it was like, "My mm-hmm. dear boy" and "My dear Brandon," which is a very common English yeah. sort of. I mean, but the British censors, people would just talk that way at that time. Yeah, yeah. but the censors I mean, <laughs> thought that they sounded really gay. <laughs> it, it, I know. I mean, which, it's whatever. it's nineteen it's nineteen forty eight. Um, I know, and I think I think it's interesting to put it in the subtext though too. I think it's in some ways it's more interesting to put it into the subtext in this when case. you put something when you put something in subtext and you don't address it at all it becomes even more apparent exactly that's that and the so same I don't thing, know why anybody ever even mm-hmm. tries you know? oh I know well I mean it's the same thing we were talking about as in Bride of Frankenstein you know they would they would say cut this out and it's like and they would do something that would be acceptable but it would make it worse you know it's would a, be it's more the same thing that's going to come up. In, yeah. in Cape Fear. Yes. It's the same thing, that kind of mm-hmm. things that you can't really say. You can't specifically say, like, what is actually happening. And yet, right. but that makes it even more apparent in a way. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the same in this movie. Because um, at least with the way that the movie was shot, you kind of, the actors have to be close together, you know, uh-huh. to follow mm-hmm. the camera. But Philip and Brandon are very close. Yes. A lot in this movie. They are, like, shoulder to shoulder, face to face. The way they look at each other, it's just, it's, it's so mm-hmm. there. <laughs> it's clear. It's, it's very good. Well, Farley Granger, as I understand, I think, I, he I, was think gay. He's, I think he passed away, but, but he was interviewed in the special features. But yeah, I, I believe mm-hmm. he was gay. Going back to Arthur Lawrence, I want to say with the Jimmy Stewart thing, he did suggest that maybe James Mason or something like that would have been his preferred choice for that role. And the thing is, I can picture that. I mean, I think James Stewart is excellent. I love James Stewart in this movie. I think he's just great. So I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating removing him and having someone else do it. But I can I can picture James Mason playing it and it being really interesting still. 
you know, um, because I James, don't know Mason, James Mason that well. So I don't, well, I don't James, know. James Mason has a little bit of a, I, I think he comes across as a little bit more dangerous, a little bit okay. more, a little bit more likely to have. But that's not right for the character. No, to have had a relationship with one of the, oh, with okay. one of the boys, um, but also maybe a little bit more like you would take what he says about the Nietzsche stuff seriously. Okay, but then still, that's not really right for the character because he doesn't really believe it. Not like Brandon does. Yeah, you, I have, think to, you have to have that difference. It's hard to explain. I mean, if if you if you watch James Mason as Van Dam in North by Northwest, I think you would probably see okay. it a little better. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with older actors you know, and stuff. <laughs> James, James Mason in in North by Northwest. I don't know. If, actually, I guess it's he doesn't play Van Damme. He plays. Oh, this is gonna. I thought you were talking about JCVD for a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, I got him now. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So he plays. Um, I just looked up a picture. So yeah. Yeah, he okay. plays. Yeah, Van Damme. Yeah, yeah Philip Van Damme. Uh, he's. I was right. Huh. What do you know? I think you get the sense from James Mason that he could be gay <laughs> too, you know, um, where you don't, uh, yeah, you don't get, you don't get that from the Jimmy Stewart character. No, no. And he's, he's, uh, cause, and that, and that was, I think the screenwriter's biggest objection was that he just doesn't come across as someone who would have an affair with anybody, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't uh, think you need that in this. No, I don't story, think so though. either. Like like I said, I'm not I'm not advocating. I'm just trying to play a little bit of devil's advocate, you know, for the screenwriter's idea. Yeah. But I'm not necessarily saying that he's right. I, I think Jimmy Stewart is is excellent. I think um, I think Jimmy Stewart's good in just about everything, you know. Oh. And this is very against the kind of characters he was playing at the time. But I mean, he started playing after he came back from the war. He started playing different kinds of characters. You know, he, you know, it's a wonderful life. George Bailey is not Mr. Smith. You know, George Bailey is haunted. He's a haunted character. Mm -hmm. And as is, uh, to some extent, I think Rupert Goodell in this, you know, not, not on the same level as, as Scotty and Vertigo or, you know, the parts he played in the Anthony Mann Westerns and stuff like that. But I mean, there's, there's something there that's, that's a little darker for Jimmy Stewart than most people put on. Um, I think he's I think he's excellent in the movie, and I think everyone's excellent in the movie, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And, going back to the Brandon. Yeah. Do it too. Do it. Yeah. It's just kind of more like those little moments that you you notice when you you have that in mind again with the the having a cigarette after the murder. It was uh-huh. something that it was something that he and Philip did together, and mm-hmm. so it's another mm-hmm. kind of sexual tone to that. When he, like I said, when he was yeah. gripping the. Champagne glass. glass yeah, when he's talking yeah. about how he felt during the murder, and then another thing I just noticed on this last one—I don't know what it really means—but it was there was something in it where when Kenneth arrives and they have uh, they take they take him into the living room and there's like a big wide shot with Kenneth in the middle and Philip and Brandon on either side. They're like they're mirrors of each other because they both mm-hmm. have their knee up on the chair or or bench, right? Which I thought was interesting looking. As if they were kind of the same character, or it was just that they were always connected in some way, no matter what they're doing in the movie. Well, I mean, there's... Okay, so after Rupert gets there, I mean, that's when the movie starts to really get into... That's where... I mean, that's where I sense Philip starting to really start to break down. 
He's been cracking he's, the whole time, but yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, he's very nervous about Rupert coming because, as he says, yeah. like he's the one person that's going to suspect something. Well, what happens which is, exa- is Bra- which is exactly what Brandon wants. Exactly, exactly. That's why he's like, this is this is going to be our piece de resistance here. So yeah, to speak. No, this yeah. Is before the, the guests arrive, he says like, and now the fun begins. You know, yeah. This is this is more exciting to him almost than the murder is. Being able to do all this stuff, you know, in the presence of these people with his body right there. Even himself dropping hints about yeah. murder, you know, in the conversations. The people well, starts... just waiting for someone to pick up on it. The thing with the rope around the books. Yeah. Just the rope waiting the for somebody. And... Waiting for oh Rupert to figure stuff out. That's what he's doing the whole movie. And there's this... like Yeah. Okay, so there, there, what, what I, the, when Brandon starts telling the story about the chickens... About yeah. <laughs> strangling, about 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 uh, Philip strangling the chickens and stuff like that. There's a there's a hard cut. There's an yeah. unmasked cut that happens there. And while the story is going that's on, that's a lie. Yeah. Yeah, it and and you know over. it cuts to sort of a medium shot, really, of of Jimmy Stewart listening to them talk. And he's so yeah, it just it stays on him. It stays on him while he's telling the rest of the story. You can tell. You can see the gears yeah. turning. That is one of my favorite moments in the. It's yeah. so good because I mean, and that's why an actor like Jimmy Stewart is so great exactly. here is because he always, you could always tell what he was thinking. Yes. And he could, he could barely even move his face and it would be enough. He would mm-hmm. move his eyes just a little he, bit. He does and, that and, this whole movie. He's listening to everything mm-hmm. that they say and figuring things out. It reminds me of a shot in, in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it's, which is weird, but it does. Just, just a, just a tangent on on Stewart's acting because there's this part where you know his brother comes back from uh, the war and he comes back and he's got a wife with him. He's, he got married and he says, you know, my father offered him a job. All this stuff. Um, they kind of go off and you it just focuses on on Jimmy Stewart and his face and he's thinking, oh my God, I'm never leaving this town. I am stuck here longer. I was supposed to leave tomorrow. All these sorts of things, all of these things are right there on his face. He doesn't say a word. He does his face. His expression is neutral. His eyes are like shifting just the slightest bit. And then he goes and joins them, and he starts smiling. Again. And it's just like this is why Jimmy Stewart is one of the greatest actors of all time. Yeah. And it's and it's a similar moment here when he's listening to that story because he is, you know, exactly not exactly yes. what he's thinking, but that he's thinking. And it's that's something. The way that he uh, he drops little lines to Brandon that Brandon is actually smart enough to pick up when he says, you know, mm-hmm. something gone wrong, Brandon, with your party, <laughs> or uh, when he's questioning Philip. He, I, what I love is that he never will come out and ask them what he wants to ask them. Right. So he's kind of he's almost kind of playing with them too, or maybe he just doesn't want to do it in front of he everybody. Is. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to straight up say did you kill david right <laughs> even right. though that's exactly what he's thinking well when they have the whole conversation where he comes over and he's sitting in front of the window and you you know and he's telling the whole thing it's like we should have you know a strangulation yeah. day Same and day. all this stuff there, he's there's descri- so many he's describing the purge you know yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that's another thing too there's little um there's a bunch of little lines about strangulation throughout mm-hmm. the movie too like uh, janet says something to brandon like oh i could strangle you because she's she's mad at the, the whole situation with kenneth and yeah, yeah. so another well, kind of humor thing but 
Just always keeping it in your mind. When while they're talking about it, it's strangling it's, chickens, obviously. Right, it, obviously, yeah. yeah. But one. but then the the camera just kind of pans over while he's talking about this, and it goes over to Mr. Kentley, you know, David's father, and it's just, and he's just, he's disgusted. He's distressed by this conversation. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he is really, really disturbed. I mean, everyone else is finding it kind of funny. It's like, oh, he's not serious, but he's just like. Well, what if somebody actually did this? Yeah. You know, he's the only one that's like, what you are saying is dangerous. And you can because see the, what, the change you can see the change on Rupert's face too. When he sees yeah. how upset it makes Mr. Kentley. Yeah. It's a big yeah. turn for him later in the movie, like when he comes back and he really confronts them about it. And oh, he's God. Yeah, I love that scene. We'll get to that. That sequence <laughs> is a tour D force. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but then then we have the whole thing, you know, where Rupert's got something. And he, he knows that he's not going to get it out of Brandon. But mm-hmm. Philip, on the other hand, <laughs> just might crack. the weak one. Oh, the, the scene Phillip, at the piano? The scene at the piano. That is one. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, he's actually playing about the right... Uh, watching his hands, I mean, being able to play enough piano. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. wow, he's he's actually playing... I mean, I, I you can tell it's a recording, but but he's, he's doing pretty good there, you know, with that little finger. <laughs> But that metronome and playing it and, it and just like turning up the tension by making yeah. it go faster. It's almost just... like his. It's almost like his own little lie detector is the metronome. Yeah, in a way, you know, like he's uh-huh. using that as just to see how how tense that makes Philip. You know, as he's asking him the questions, like to get if he's lying to get at the truth. But Philip is is actually holding his own pretty good. You, no matter how like scared he is, he's he has those moments where he's like really like you can see like he just wants to spill it out, but then he can switch back and be like, well, I don't know what you're what you're talking about. It's something yeah. he learned from Brandon, I would think. Oh yeah, I think absolutely. So. I think he's so. Farley Farley Granger. Is it Farley or Fairly? I believe it's Farley. Farley. Okay, I never yeah. say it right. But just a but I could side, side I could note, he's. Just a side note, like he he's very funny as he gets drunker. Like one of my favorite moments is at the end after Jimmy Stewart comes back and he's he's asking for a drink and he's like, "Are you sure it's okay if I stay and have a long one?" And it's just it's a shot of Brandon and and Jimmy and Phillips in the background. He's like, "Are you sure it's okay if I if I stay and have a drink?" And Philip just from the background goes, "He said you could have it." <laughs> And he's like, he just says it like so drunk. I, I yeah, <laughs> I love that scene. He's just it's, like so exasperated. Good. Like, we know what you're doing. Just have a drink and like tell us we did it and get us in trouble. Like that's you can see all of that in that scene. But it's also funny just the way he says it. <laughs> but yes, he's, yeah. he's great, and I love this scene with him at the piano. Yeah, that's that's one of my. I mean, it's it's hard to call them scenes because you know they're all yeah, they're right. all disconnected. <laughs> it's one of those things where I don't even really remember the conversation because I'm so intent on the fact that Mrs. Wilson is clearing everything off the trunk. Yes. She's going to put the books inside and she's taking the candelabras first. Then she takes some of the plates away. Then she clears off the tablecloth and she's about to open it when Brandon just sort of casually walks. It's not like a big, don't open it or anything. Yeah. He just casually which, walks over. Which would over. be in any other movie. Yeah, they would have yeah. They would have been so much more mm-hmm. abrupt about it. But Brandon's just like, oh, that's okay, Mrs. Wilson. You can do that yeah. in the morning. He just casually it's like walks so by. so cool, like, the whole Wilson. movie. And and the thing is, you know, he's, he's I wasn't going to come in in the morning. It's like, well, I'm afraid you'll have to. You know, all that stuff. He's just... So cold, you know. This so like cold, there's, yeah. There's just no empathy or emotion. He's he would be. Yeah, I mean, 
We'd call him a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, this is the yeah. thing about he thinks he's Nietzsche's Superman or whatever. Honestly, he's a sociopath. Yeah, he is. That's what he's really yeah. describing himself as. Which yeah. I don't know if he's smart enough. He should have seen that. Like you have no yeah. empathy for people. You think people are inferior to you, and therefore they deserve to die. And you have no feelings toward them. That's a sociopath. <laughs> Come exactly. on, that, that is that is diagnosal. That's diagnosable <laughs> right there. And that's why that's why I think I have more empathy for Philip because he's not. He's not. I mean, a he's no. he's completely being ripped apart by this. Mm-hmm. He's um, like under Brandon's spell because he's the stronger yeah. of the two. Yeah, and you can you can see where in dynamics like this, and I hate to bring this up, uh, so I don't know if I should issue a trigger warning about it now by saying you know the word Columbine, but you know you can see how the dynamic between these two people could happen, where you have a sociopath, which is what Eric Harris was, and you have this other person who comes into the fray who is sensitive and you know a little bit uh, shy. This person accepts them, you know, mm-hmm. and so Dylan Klebold kind of goes along with this person, you know, and this horrible crime happens. You know, you see some of that sort of dynamic happening in this movie of, of that kind of relationship that is played out in mm-hmm. various ways in history, Leopold and Loeb being just one of them. It seems like that, that could be the dynamic in any kind of thing where there's like a pair of killers. There's always a stronger yeah. one. That sort of makes the other one do what they want to because they can. Maybe not even because they like him. Do you think Brandon even likes Philip? I mean, there's a whole, like, homosexual aspect, but... I I don't know if Brandon likes anybody. Yeah, exactly. Because he's a sociopath. But you you kind of get the feeling that he tolerates him, in a way, Humans... Yeah, other humans are, are, are merely toys to play with. Yes. Of course, the, uh... He was a Harvard undergraduate. <laughs> that might make it justifiable homicide. He's dead and we've killed him. But he's still here. In less than eight hours, he'll be resting gently but firmly at the bottom of a lake. Meanwhile, he's here. What are you doing? It's not locked. All the better. It's much more dangerous. A- anyway, the lock's too old. It won't work. Oh, it would. I wish we had him out of here. I wish it was somebody else. A trifle late for that, don't you think? Uh, whom would you have preferred? Kenneth? Oh, I don't know. I suppose anyone was as good or as bad as any other. You, perhaps. You frightened me. You always have. From that very first day in prep school. Part of your charm, I suppose. I'm only kidding, Brandon. I I obviously can't take it as well as you, so I'm turning on you a little. That's rather foolish, isn't it? Yes. Very. (laughs) You know, there's not... There's not He especially gets frustrated with Philip throughout this movie that he's not handling it the way he Mm -hmm. thought he would. The way he thought he should. Yeah, it's like, why aren't you handling it like I am? Essentially. Yeah. I I love them. And I think maybe that's part of seeing... Philip fall apart like that even maybe even more so than seeing David's body is what causes that um the whole monologue from from Rupert at the end you know he's he sees as he tells Brandon he sees the way that he is corrupted you know the ideas that he had about 
you know, intellectual superiority, which is just like bullshit anyway. <laughs> Nobody's right. superior to somebody else just because you're smarter. And he makes, he says, you've made me ashamed of that. It's like, you, you, you should be for one thing. Yeah. But it's like, he sees the, he's seeing the effect that it's having on Philip. He sees the effect that it has on Mr. Kentley, that he's even has these ideas and he completely turns around at the end. That's yeah. That's a great scene. When he does yeah. the whole thing. So the whole closing sequence, okay, so everyone is leaving the party, you know, everyone kind of heads out. Mrs. Wilson puts the, uh, gives Rupert his hat, but it's the, but it's too small. And, and he takes it off and you see the initials inside the hat, D-K, yeah. as in David Kentley. David Kentley. And that is sort of like, he, he would, part of me wonders if, if he was just going to come back anyway, if he would have. If he suspect, I don't know if he suspected. He suspected enough by this enough, moment. Enough, but yes. but but when, when, with the hat, it's just like it's beyond. It's there's just beyond a doubt in his mind. When he comes back, he keeps saying that I think he kidnapped David. He's just saying that I think because he doesn't really want to believe that he mm-hmm. does think that they they killed him. Right. Because that's hard for him to accept. It's it's that thing of like yeah, you're talking up a big game about murder and like you know killing people for for fun and because you're smarter but actually confronting it and carrying it out no he would have never done that it's a totally different thing and he's he finally sees that which i don't know how you could not see that before because that's just a ridiculous idea i'm sorry Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the whole way through i cannot i don't know how anybody would ever think that that's possible like just because you're so intellectually superior like you are not bound to the laws of yeah well, ordinary this is a... men and he says it because because ordinary men need them it's like well right. i'm not intellectually superior but um, i'm kind of smart enough to know that um yeah you shouldn't do these things <laughs> right that's bad well i mean it's it's this movie or that they're above it they don't have to follow the same laws i don't know this movie is an excellent treatise on the idea that ideas have consequences. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Because Nietzsche was a very persuasive writer. He had these ideas that, you know, you hear them now, and, and there are some things that I suppose are sound, but there are other things where it's less like, I don't think so. Because quite frankly, you know, Okay, so the real Leopold and Loeb case happened in 1924, but this ha- this movie was made in 1948. Okay, 1948, we've seen sort of the ultimate consequences of sort of of the Nietzschean philosophy in the which Holocaust. they bring up in the movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like Kentley says, you know, so was Hitler. You know, yes, exactly, and and so it's just like. So I think I think this movie is just like is is saying you know really balance ideas with morality and I think there's an element of that in this movie you know with just human compassion you know uh, balance ideas with the human dignity the state of human dignity as Mr. Kentley and says he's he calls it like the way you're talking it's a contempt for humanity yeah entirely and he's right yeah yeah. And it's not feeling that you're too good to be a part of humanity. And then as Rupert says at the end, like, no, like this is so stupid that we ever even thought this in the first place. We're all just people who deserve to live and love. And Mm -hmm. David especially deserved that because 
you know, and he had a great thing you're, going you're a person, him, you know? you're a person that could never learn to love another person. You know, that's like, like he talks about. So, yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of see all the regret in Jimmy Stewart's face for having entertained these things in a way that people took seriously. Yeah, it's, it's powerful. And, you know, coming from a director like Hitchcock telling this story is interesting because he's so often depicted as kind of a cold director. I think that's maybe true technically. I don't think it's true thematically for him. No. I think his, his movies are very humane. The worth of a human life is seen over and over yeah. again in his movies, even though a lot of times we sort of have the fun, quote unquote, of seeing people murdered in his movies, you know, it's, uh, I, I think there is sort of that undercurrent anyway. That's, that's getting probably a little bit deeper than I <laughs> We're getting be, deep but... on this movie. That's what I love yeah. about this movie though. Yeah. Yeah. So there's in, a couple of moments scene, too. Yeah, go. Just, um, earlier moments that I totally forgot my favorite shot of the whole movie, um, toward the beginning. I just want to mention it before I forget it. It's before the guests have arrived and, mm-hmm. um, Philip notices that Brandon is just holding on to the rope as he's uh-huh. talking to Mrs. Wilson. He's like, you need to put that away. Like, someone's going to notice it. And Brandon says, I know, what? I know what? It's, just, about, it's yeah. just an ordinary piece of rope. It belongs in the kitchen drawer. And it's like the best shot ever. As it follows Brandon, he's just like swinging the rope casually in his hand. You know, as he walks um, into the kitchen, there's like a, a swinging door. And it's just so perfectly timed. I love yeah. it. The way the door opens. And um, he drops the rope in the and drawer. He, it, he, go, he goes through, and the door kind of closes, and when the door swings back open again is when you see, like, just this perfect shot of him, mm-hmm. like, with this ghoulish smile on his face, yeah. like, just dropping the rope into the drawer. I fucking love it. It makes me this so is, happy every time I see it. This is an interesting movie because I remember when I, I, had, I was first getting into Hitchcock, I was talking to a friend of mine who um, had gone to film school, and he said that he watched this movie in editing class, which I thought, well, that's really interesting because, and the reason why is because the film is edited in a way, even though there are no cuts in the movie, the way the camera moves and what it chooses to focus on is editing and it's editing without cuts and with, with a minimum of cuts. And it's fascinating. And there have been movies that have come out, you know, since the days of uh, digital that literally are one take, a 90-minute yeah. take, you know, like Victoria and Russian Ark. But then you have something that's sort of a fake version of that, like 1917, which is a great movie. But or it's Bird supposed Man. to be one continuous shot. Or Birdman. Birdman's another great example. But, I mean, just these they're supposed to be continuous shots, but, but they're not. They're just done in a very, very clever way. Um, so, so this movie actually has had a lot more influence over the past, let's say, 15 years than it did for a while before that. Uh, I, I think I find that really interesting, and yeah. um, but from a technical standpoint, at least. Yeah, um, what you were talking about too, I think, is yeah, best maybe not best illustrated, but a really good example of that. Just like editing with the camera is that scene that you were talking about before when. Um, Brandon and Rupert are kind of sparring, like, um, uh-huh. oh, well, what do you think I would have done if I wanted to get rid of David? And Rupert's yes. going through, and it's the camera I mean, is following Rupert as he's saying, like, oh, I would invite David in. We'd go into the hallway, and the camera is just showing these places. and That are as, all empty. That are empty. 
Yeah. You know, he's saying, I would offer him a drink. And, you know, it's right as the camera pans over to the table with the drinks on it. And I would sit in the chair. That's another great moment, too, is that when uh, Rupert comes back, um, he sits in that chair that David sat in. And it's mm-hmm. just such a great tension moment with them as he's just sitting there with his drink and Philip and Brandon are standing over him. And he's yes. terrified of them. He is, clearly. Well, I mean, even, okay, that's probably my favorite part of the which one? Is when he is is explaining how he would have done the murder. Yeah, that's, that's shot so and, well. And, I love that. I mean, and it's 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 so innovative. And it's it's just, it's daring. I mean, just showing nothing. Yeah. It's the pure cinema idea that Hitchcock talked about, um, which was, you know, putting together pieces of film to create a mood. I mean, it's not, it's, it's just what you see and to some extent what you hear, but it's they, what you hear matters less. It's really an interesting um, kind of example of that. And um, there's a great line. Just, be- Go ahead. If you just think about how that was done, too, if you see behind the scenes pictures filming this movie, the color cameras at that Shy, time enormous. were fucking huge. Yes. Huge. Yes. Just watching the movie, you can kind of be like, oh, okay, I see all like the little technical stuff they have to do. And, but you're picturing a camera like we have now. When you see that thing, it's like, oh, my God, that, this must have been impossible almost. Yeah. But, well, and, not, but it just feels like it would be like so hard to work around that thing. And there are some, there are some technical things in the movie that, I mean, if you're, if you're getting really nitpicky, there are some you know, bumpy moments, you know. <laughs> Uh, when the camera is clearly moving into yeah. into an into into like a slot that it needs to fit into in <laughs> right. order to you know that sort of thing, but it's really not that big of a deal. But some of the things that are interesting is like they they could turn the whole set yeah. you know in different directions to get this all to happen. They rehearsed it for ten days before shooting. Um, just the it camera feel like enough. <laughs> no. It doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, it's just that would they rehearsed it with the camera, with the actual cameras unloaded, you know, to get this choreographed. Because man, <laughs> I can't insane. even imagine yeah. how they pulled this off. I mean, and obviously they they would do a, a one you know quote unquote ten minute take at a time. But if you screw it up, you know. Eight minutes, minutes and thirty yeah, seconds <laughs> let in. I mean, boy, I hate to be the actor that, that that has that issue, or you know, or the cameraman that that doesn't pull the focus just right at that right time or whatever. You know, especially you know Hitchcock, as we all know. I mean, he was a perfectionist. Maybe not in a Kubrick sense of it, but he was technically a perfectionist. You know, it was the technical stuff that really interested him about making movies. And so it was... um, And this was, like, called, at the time, even, a gimmick movie because of how he wanted... Yeah. Even Hitchcock called it a gimmick. (laughs) But I I don't really care because I love the gimmick. Because I love the gimmick and I think they pulled the gimmick off well. And it's part of what makes me able to watch this movie, like, over and over again. Another one of those movies I can watch over and over again and just... Never get bored. Exactly. I, I was trying to find the, the quote because uh, I just got uh, the Hitchcock Truffaut book and I was reading up on, on rope. He says, okay, so Hitchcock's answer of what they were talking about rope is, I undertook rope as a stunt. That's the only way I can describe it. I really don't know how I came to indulge in it. 
<laughs> you know, and he talks about how it was a play, and I said, and I got this crazy idea to do it in a single take. When I look back, I realize it was quite nonsensical because I was breaking with my own theories on the importance of cutting and montage for the visual narration of the story. On the other hand, the film was, in a sense, pre-cut. The mobility yeah. of the camera and the movement of the players closely followed my usual cutting practice. So yeah. I think I think he seems to be ultimately kind of fairly happy with the movie. He's like, yeah, you know, and he says, but at the same time, you know, he says, the fact that I tried it again on Under Capricorn was a mistake, is what yeah. he says. And if you've seen Under Capricorn, you will likely agree <laughs> with that statement. It's not very good. I mean, it's... It's a Hitchcock movie, so there's always something worth seeing yeah. in it. But but it's I mean I, I said Topaz was was dull, but it's nothing nothing. I, I I don't think I don't think Hitchcock was interested in Under Capricorn. Well, no, a, he that's a shame. He, yeah, he has a few movies that are interesting. If you read biographies of him, it's like where he was he would like fall asleep on the set and stuff like that. So. Um, <laughs> And so if he wasn't interested in a movie, he would just phone it in. He could still make something pretty good, you know, in a lot of cases, which is pretty amazing. But there's a line. He made something pretty damn good with Rope. He did. I think, and I have to say, I think Rope is is an excellent film. It's it's not personally in my top Hitchcock films, but I understand why it is for a lot of people, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and maybe at some point it will be. To be honest, I, I, I'm not really sure because I, I revisit his films a lot. And this is one I, I do come back to a lot. Apart I'm from sure we're going to talk about more. It's a great movie. It's short. It's 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 it's, <laughs> uh, it's only an hour and 20 minutes point. long. Yeah, it's yeah. well acted. I, I had to say there's a great line, though. I think it's mm-hmm. Philip who says it. At least if I have a hangover, it'll be mine. It'll be yes. all mine. Uh, he <laughs> says that before Jimmy Stewart comes back. And I, I love that. You know, we've been. Then when Jimmy Stewart actually opens the, the trunk, you know, we don't see the body again. We just mm-hmm. see sort of the back of the trunk and it cuts to them. And he has that monologue where he just talks about the whole, I mean, that's an interesting scene. I mean, that's a, yeah. that whole sequence where the whole final sequence that's just between the three of them is incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's some of the best stuff, at least from an acting standpoint, in all of Hitchcock's work. I think so. I just like, too, that it's, uh, there's such a weird thing with the characters, like, as Philip is getting continually more drunk, as I keep saying, but it's, I love it, and kind of belligerent and kind of mm-hmm. just turn us in, please, just, I can't take this anymore. Um, yeah. If you notice, Rupert is getting steadily, he's genuinely scared of them, at least of Brandon. Yeah. And you can see that just building up until the end when he comes back. Is like, you're like I, I knew I had to come back to uh, to find out if you really did kill him. But now I'm definitely scared that you're going to kill me. And yeah. I, loved, I just like the way he plays well, that part, too. Like, the way he's just getting... He, at first, he's just, like, kind of questioning. He's like, oh, something's going on here. And then as it just keeps going on, he gets genuinely scared of them. And yeah, you can well, see I mean, it on his face. And Brandon... He has and Brandon, and Brandon, Brandon is the same loaded whole, the gun. Yeah, and Brandon is the same. It's the whole movie. Like, yeah. none of it bothers him. And uh. No, I mean, even at the ending, that closing tableau where it's, okay, so Jimmy Stewart's sitting with his back to the camera. Yeah. He's got his hand on the chest with the gun. He's holding on to the gun that he got away from Brandon. 
Um, then you have on the uh, left-hand side of the screen, you have Philip sitting at the piano, piano. And he's sort of hunched over. And he's, he's doing his whole nervous thing. But then Brandon is over on the right-hand side of the screen. He's just casually taking a drink. Exactly. And it's like... Acting that exactly the same as he is, has the whole movie. That is such an incredible ending. Yes. I mean, it is one of the best compositions, first of all. I mean, just, yeah. just simple composition of it is amazing. There's but a couple then, of those, too. Like, when um, earlier when Brandon and Janet are talking, you can see Jimmy Stewart, like, in between them in the background, too. Like, obviously, composition is really important in, in this movie, the way they shot it. Everything, everything had to be perfect. And, yeah, there are so many great yeah. little moments like that, too. That's a great shot. I like that, that three shot I was talking about, too, with... Um, Yes. Brandon and Philip and Kenneth. You know, so, honestly, yeah, this this movie. conversation <laughs> this conversation makes me want to go watch it again, like right now, because um, there there's just so much that I I like the movie. Like I said, I've seen it, you know, uh, maybe half a dozen times, and I've always liked it. But I guess I've I didn't I've never seen some of the stuff that you're I describing before. Yes, I love um, it because I guess to some somewhere in me, maybe I've always thought of it as maybe lesser Hitchcock. I know it seems that way because you know. it's not as exciting, right? Like there's right. Not it's not North by Northwest, you know. Yeah. It's not North by Northwest with the, the so all the you know classic Hitchcock there's things. Not, it's the not crop dusters, you know. It's not a lot of big yeah. set pieces. It's just a bunch of people in a room talking. Mm-hmm. But it's so but compelling again, when you really get into it. Yeah. But then again, for me, so is Rear Window though. And I love Rear Window. <laughs> you know, I there's a little bit more Rear action Window. in Rear Window. Though. There, there is, especially when, when, and it's got Grace Kelly. And boy, yeah. Grace Kelly was <laughs> maybe the most beautiful woman who ever lived. <laughs> you know, in the in, in, in 1950. Joan Chandler. I'm sorry, it's Janet. She's freaking adorable. She's she's so adorable. cute. I love. I her. love her. I love her. And she, I looked her up. And like she wasn't in a whole lot of stuff, and I was like, she seems mm-hmm. like someone who should have been like super popular. Yeah. Too, uh, it, too bad, but yeah, this is yeah one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. Like, and my favorite Hitchcock, and yeah, I've really enjoyed talking about it today because I've never actually gotten to talk about it with anybody. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, this is so. yeah, I'm and you've kind of you've helped me to see it through new eyes, I think, a little bit, and so I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing it again. You know, awesome. Yeah. That's what all we ever want. That's right. More appreciation for movies. All right. So, moving on to our weekly recommendation. Yours is related mine's to related, what we just, yeah. we just talked about, so you go first. Yeah. Mine's related to Rope, and it is a movie called Compulsion, which came out in 1959, uh, directed by Richard Fleischer. Okay, so this is a different take on the Leopold and Loeb case. It's not one room. It's it's uh, takes place over several days. Um, You've got Dean Stockwell, you know, very young. Orson Welles plays sort of a yeah. Clarence Darrow kind of character. And uh, then... Oh my gosh, he, Clarence Darrow is the mm-hmm. one who defended Leopold Loeb. <laughs> exactly. That's the one. But then we also... Now this, is, this brings us back to another courtroom drama that we have discussed, 12 Angry Men. It also co-stars E.G. Marshall. Sweet. Yes. <laughs> and and Edward Bins, juror number six. Number six? Oh, yay. Which is so funny because randomly, I've been watching all these movies lately. I see I watched uh, I watched Night Moves. 
I watched Compulsion. I watched a movie called Curse of the Undead. And I watched something else. And all of them had Edward Binns in them. So I had like sort of this Edward Binns mini marathon um, over the over the past several months, uh, along with 12 Angry Men. Um, but anyway, this movie, um, Compulsion, is I'd say it's good. The first half, especially, is really, really compelling. And when you watch it, I, I think there, it's, it's really well directed. It's really well acted. Um, it goes more into the motivation of what led them to the killing. And then it kind of stops dead when they get arrested in the courtroom stuff. The only thing that really makes the second half, the courtroom stuff, interesting, to be honest, is Orson Welles. And he's, sure. he's not 100% into this character, I don't think. I think he was mm-hmm. making it around the same time he was... If I recall doing, uh, uh, let me check here. He was doing, yeah, he, it was, this was, this was after, a little bit after Touch of Evil. Uh, Touch of Evil is 1958. This was 1959. He may have done this. Oh, we gave you funding for Touch of Evil. We let you do that. So now you got to be Clarence Darrow in our, in our Leopold and Loeb movie. And he's like, okay. You know, that's a little bit what it feels like, you know? He's good in it. He's, I don't think he's capable of giving a bad performance, but but he just doesn't seem to be as into it as, as he would be in, in something else. Um, but so it's it's a little bit of a trepidatious recommend. It's uh, <laughs> it's like the first half is like yes, five star masterpiece, and then then it's it 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 loses a bit uh, later in the film, but still yeah. worth still worth seeing. Well, sure, because it's the same yeah. kind of story. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah, that kept, yeah, that kept I, popping up while I was looking into this, and I was curious about it. It made me curious to read the book that it was based on, because I mean it's a fictionalized account of mm-hmm. the Leopold and Loeb case. It actually takes place in 1924, um, though, so it's a, it's sort of thinly veiled, <laughs> you know, as being about it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. All right. Good. Well, my recommendation is a five star masterpiece to me. Okay. Um, this was just one of those movies that I watched. Um, it's just a random one I picked up from the library and it ended up being like, it, it made me like so excited, like how much I loved it and how good it was. Um, it was Billy Wilder movie from 1957, Witness for the Prosecution. Oh, I've never seen that one. Oh my God. I was just, yeah. I was astonished at this movie. It is so good. You have to watch it. Um, so it's, Charles Lofton, for one thing, is like the main oh. main character. He's so funny. He's like this um, older. Um, it's English, so he's a barrister, you right? Know? <laughs> and um, he's just had a heart attack and like come home from the hospital or something. And so he's also got um, Elsa Lanchester's in it. Oh, she's like a little funny. nurse. It's like his nurse that's like taking care of him and you know telling him not to smoke cigars and take these pills all the time. It's really cool. It's a funny um, kind of relationship. But um, Well, you knew Ty that Ro- Elsa Lanchester and, and Charles Lawton were married, right? Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, they were. Okay. Well, the story is, is that um, there's a guy um, played by Tyrone Power okay. who um, is accused of murdering this like um, wealthy older lady that he had become friends with. Um, and he says, like, for sure that he didn't do it or whatever. And it's just, and Charles Lofton is going to defend him is basically the story. And Marlene Dietrich is um, Tyrone Perro's wife. And it's just, um, I love courtroom stuff, obviously. Yeah. Like, we're going to tackle that subject here pretty soon. It's courtroom mm-hmm. movies. But this one is just so good. And it, especially toward the end, um, 
It's got, it's a twist movie. It's got like a twist and then a twist and then a twist at the end that just had me like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I nice. love it. So yeah, you, I think you'll love it. Yeah. I'm, I, I love Billy Wilder. So I mean, I, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, one... and it's, it's hilarious too, because it's Billy Wilder and it's just, mm-hmm. it's funny, but it's also like really serious and the courtroom stuff is really good. And it's yeah. like the coolest looking courtroom I've ever seen in a movie. Just, I guess the English ones maybe are a little bit different back then. It's just, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Highly, highly just, recommend Witness for the Prosecution. Yeah, it's been on my radar for a while. I, I need to I need to just track it down and give it a watch then. Cool. Yeah, do it. Nice. Okay. So uh, really quickly, did we want to cover a couple of things we have going on? Just yeah, so people wanna, know. You want to stuff. I got to plug do it. stuff. Do it. Okay, here's, here's the thing. I have a couple of articles that um, I, I, I normally won't just plug my articles that are coming out. But in this case... I ha- by the time this comes out, I think the second part of it will be available as well. That I've been I've been doing a uh, series for Manor Vellum on Wes Craven, sort of like how his religious upbringing, the influence that it had on his films, and so I'm really really happy with the way the first two parts of that have come out, um, and I'm going to be working on the third part here soon. And it's kind of like the magnum opus that I've been doing. Um, then, then actually something that's already out is a piece I did for bloody disgusting called why classic horror that I think it's sort of a defense uh, because a while back we had this whole thing, you know, about Martin Scorsese being attacked for, for being elitist for liking old movies and (laughs) all these sorts of things like that. Y'all you leave know, my dad alone, seriously. I I know, and 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 so um, I, I wrote a little bit of a defense of a classic film through the lens of you know classic horror films, obviously because it's you know it's bloody disgusting, and I yeah. I write I write the uh, that uh, column, but it's started some interesting conversation. I, I think it's a good article. I, if I'm saying so myself, I guess, and I I've gotten some really nice feedback on it. I would love to. Just point people in that direction if you're interested. And even if you're not interested in horror films, if you're interested in just movies from a certain time, you know, it might be worth checking out. And then also I'm going to be on uh, Schlock and Awe. Oh my God, you're not done yet? I'm not done yet. I'm almost done. (laughs) Almost done. I'm recording recording with Lindsay tomorrow for Schlock and Awe, uh, an episode on M and Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, So anyway. Well, I am super proud of you. Those sound... I have not read your pieces yet because I'm horrible. It's, but no, it, no, don't even worry. So the Wes Craven ones, just to warn you, are long. <laughs> I mean, they're, 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 you're gonna have to settle in to read them a little bit. But um, I've gotten some really great feedback, some really nice comments Good. from people on that. That's awesome. So. I'm proud of you. Happy for you. And you are working on something right now that I think will be available. I'm, I'm gonna put it out there in the universe. Do you think it's gonna be? I'm out? working on it. I'm not gonna say what it is. No. All that's right. that's fine. That's fine. I'm 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 super excited about it. I'm super excited for you that that you know. I haven't written anything in like a year. Exactly. So, I mean, just yeah. just to just to have you your voice in in a, something you've wrote, written like that again is is just really exciting. And I'm so not that great. I'm very mediocre. At best. Oh, come on. that's not true. I love your writing. 
what, no. uh, what uh, the pieces I've read from you. Philip, you're writing. Awesome. All right, Ryan. let's end this. Let's moving on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> what's our next episode, Ryan? Well, our next episode um, is gonna drop sometime around Mother's Day. May- if our yes. math is correct, it'll probably be around then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll it'll be somewhere. You know, maybe maybe a week, maybe two, maybe a week. I have and a no half idea. Before. We'll just say we'll just say it is. Can <laughs> go with it. There we go. Sounds good to me. Because I have no idea. I never counted. But yeah, we had done, in a previous episode, we did our dad's birth year movies. And now, since this is going to be around Mother's Day, now we're going to go with mom's birth year movies. Brian, what's yours? Oh my gosh. Okay, my mom was born in 1953. I want you all to do me a favor. Go on the Letterboxd and look up 1953 and see if you can choose just one movie from that list. (laughs) There was a lot of good ones, yeah. Holy shit. It was just like, if this was, this was like, I agonized for weeks over this decision. But it came down to the fact that um, the Kino Lorber sale happened. And I happened right. to pick up the movie uh, Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker, which is a movie I think I've seen. <laughs> but I'm not entirely We're sure. We're supposed to be picking like our favorite movies. I know we are, show. but the thing but is, I, the re- yes, I am excited to talk about Ida Lupino. The reason why I'm picking this movie is because, first of all, I'm very confident that it's going to be really good, and I'm going to like it. It is. Um, I've seen it once. That's good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen it and enjoyed it. Um, and and also, frankly, I really want to talk about Ida Lupino. I think yes. she's fascinating and just a wonderful filmmaker um also from that year that same year was the bigamist which is a really interesting movie so coming to this with a list that included wages of fear tokyo story gentlemen prefer blonde shane and about i would have loved a to dozen the wages more. of fear you you know what we're gonna do the wages of fear and sorcerer in the same episode and it's <laughs> okay. gonna be amazing I just really want, part of it is I really wanted to do a female director again too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's nice to and especially, you know, getting a chance to talk about a movie from the 50s from a female, female director, director. Yeah. is is really really something special. And so anyway, and what is your My movie is uh, funnily enough another uh, Billy Wilder movie. <laughs> Uh, my mom was born in 1959, and when I looked at the movies that came out that year, um, I absolutely had to go with Some Like It Hot. Because, I don't know if there's any other choice. That movie um, is so there good. There was, yeah, there was like one I that we're going to do for something else. There's House on a Haunted Hill, which is fun, but I mean, when you got Some Like It Hot, like that's been a favorite since, oh my god, since of middle school probably was when I saw it. Yeah. Um, God, I just love this movie for years, and I'm just, yeah, I'm stoked to talk about it. <laughs> that, I don't really that's have great. anything else to say. It's just, like, everyone knows it's, like, it's awesome. It's got its own, like, criterion now, which I'm excited to, uh, mm-hmm. I haven't actually checked it out yet. I bought it, but I haven't had yeah, a chance I... to watch the movie on that, so it'd be great to revisit this, because it actually has been a little bit since I've seen it, and it just yeah, always too. makes me laugh. It makes me feel good, and it's, <laughs> it's and a great this, movie. This movie reminds me why I love the three central actors as yeah. much as I do. Right. I mean, cause I mean, uh, Tony Curtis in this is so funny. <laughs> Jack Lemmon though. Come Jack Lemmon is brilliant. He's, He's and, so like over the top. I love it. <laughs> and my gosh, as Marilyn Monroe, yeah. uh, 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 what, 
what can you say about Marilyn Monroe? I mean, it's we'll it's going to be. We'll get into it. Yeah. We, we certainly will. So, um, and then, of course, the man behind the camera and the writing, um, uh, Billy Wilder, and I.L. Diamond as well, of course. So, yeah, really looking forward to both of these yeah. films. So, should be, awesome. should be a very fun discussion. I think so. Okay. So, until. Is there. Oh, wait a minute. We, we got to give our. Give our oh, we gotta plug credentials real quick. Yeah. Credentials. Okay. <laughs> My credentials is I talk bullshit on Twitter, which you and, can read at Michelle in Hagen. And um, I pretty much just post what movies I'm watching. Yeah. And what and what stuff I've written that's been released on Twitter at this point. You gotta um, hang out with us more, Brian. Come on. Life is so crazy right now. When summer yeah. vacation hits, everything is going to be so much easier. But you can find me at Brian D. Kuyper and our show at Movie Life Pod. And, and again, we've, as always, uh, talked longer than we planned. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to say, uh, especially about Rope. I'm anyway. just looking at these numbers like, oh, great. I get to edit this. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, no, it's fine. Ch- I love it. Cheers, cheers to uh, Michelle for being the editor of this show, um, which I really want to – I really want to make sure – people know that all the all the reason a big reason why this show is good <laughs> i think it's because of michelle's no. michelle's editing she's she's does such a terrific job and i know and um, i enjoy it i like making this show sound good for everybody to hear and so that i am tolerable enough to listen to myself <laughs> back again if i want to you know <laughs> all right just and i'll plug, plug that i will again. plug you for the our outro music that you hear Aww. after every episode, it's very cute. I love it. I'll probably start <laughs> it. Probably start it right about here. It'll be okay fading. as we're winding down. As we're winding down, the music will be fading up as we say goodbye and thank and you one all of for us, listening. <laughs> and one of us inevitably says, "We'll see you next time." We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.